me. You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Two Guys Talking is an internet radio show. Podcast. Providing you with complete, detailed, and always educational perspectives when it comes to television, feature films, DVDs, Blu-rays, and the hottest in online entertainment. This week, it's Two Guys Talking... Jurassic Park, 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. In the hot days of 1993, my then-not-yet wife and I were busy being flooded out of our new home in St. Louis during the hundred-year flood, having just moved there four months earlier. In theaters around the nation, and in fact the world, a different kind of unbelievable destruction was happening at the very short, small hands of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, a small pack of Velociraptors, and really an entire island of finally digitally realized dinosaurs in a land called Jurassic Park. It's been 22 years since the first movie came out, followed by a bunch of stars in sequels, and it's finally time to welcome you to Jurassic Park. Specifically, the perspective review of Jurassic Park from 1993 from Two Guys Talking. A global long-term look at a movie that meant something very different back then, 22 years ago, and our perspectives of what it means now on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Greetings, everybody. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. Hi, I'm Carlos Stacey, and it's an honor here to be invited to Two Guys Talking, the Jurassic Park retrospect, and, and this is awesome. I really appreciate it, Mike. Well, Carl, it's always glad to have you again. You uh, you were the first kid that I remember talking to about movies way back when we were doing a Two Guys Talking show before it was ever Two Guys Talking. It would have been two ridiculous kids talking, so... Uh, it's, yeah. it's always a pleasure to have you, especially here inside of the cone of a movie that means a lot to a lot of people, especially because of the recent sequel that came out. It meant so much to us back then because it was a bit of a visual <laughs> watershed moment for us. And it, it'll be interesting to talk with you about how that has translated to today and its current, you know, the Jurassic world. You know, could they have possibly have recaptured the same type of watershed moment that is something that i look forward to discussing with you even though i will say this i have not seen jurassic world that's okay because uh it'll be another yeah, 22 years it. before we go over that one <laughs> yeah that's true. i got time, I got time. <laughs> yeah uh, qu a quick little bit of housekeeping i wanted to make sure everyone checked out our perspective review of american graffiti carl do you remember american graffiti of course i do Okay, well, we did that one recently with my Two Guys Talking Cars.com co host. His name is Ron Ryling, as well as Mike from Gary's Automotive, one of the sponsors of Two Guys Talking Cars. Again, that was a really interesting perspective on that film because, Carl, I have to admit, I had never seen that in its entirety at all until this year. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. what a treat for you. It was, and I was also able to watch it on Blu ray, and so I got to see a lot of the. Uh, Carl, I don't know if you how prolific you are inside of DVD looking, but the, you can see all kinds of stuff that originally, especially inside of, let's say, a drive-in movie theater, you would have never seen in detail, but you do see inside of the Blu-ray presentation of that film. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I myself have just recently delved into the world. Well, I have to admit, I have traded my collection of DVDs and a small amount of Blu-rays with several of my friends mm -hmm. uh, over the 
past couple of years. Sure. So we've been trading back and forth, digitizing our collections and watching each other's movies. And this is like the first time I've really, truly been able to see, side by side actually, the standard def DVD copies of movies and Blu-rays. Like I put them right next to each other and it, it, it truly is amazing. It's like I'm so late to the game in embracing it, uh, being a movie, you know, a movie fanatic. I don't know why it took me so long, but it did. Yeah, it's amazing. The colors, uh, again, being able to see the somebody's got a stain on their shirt, the actual patterns inside of what people are wearing, the paint jobs on cars inside that movie are absolutely extraordinary. Anyway, I wanted to make sure that everybody knew that we did the perspective review of that as well. You can find all the information about that as well as more reviews about great cars inside of television and movies over at Two Guys Talking Cars. Com. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, Carl, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my probably all-time favorite review inside of Two Guys Talking to Raiders of the Lost Ark when I invited you on as that shall not be mentioned formally with formal title name movie came out uh, not too long ago as the fourth entry to the Indiana Jones saga. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that this year at, you know, where I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at our Milwaukee Film Festival, rumor has it that we are going to get a chance to see a print, a new print of Raiders of the Lost Ark, 35mm print this year up here in Milwaukee. So I don't know if any of your fans out there are going to be in the neighborhood in September, but if they want to check out 35mm print on the big screen of Raiders, it's going to play here towards the end of September. I might have to make a, a visit back home to Milwaukee then because that sounds extraordinary, and I would love to see that in the original 35mm presentation again. Anyway, that perspective review of Raiders of the Lost Ark and that movie in general is classic. We're going to link up to the show notes inside of this episode of Two Guys Talking, focusing on Jurassic Park to that one, the Raiders of the Lost Ark perspective review. Again, tons of fun with Carl and I that I know that you'll enjoy. So, Carl, let's get straight to the Jurassic Park Perspective Review, 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. Sponsored by the St. Charles Office Center, Sprint's Relay, Missouri, and Acoustica's Mixed Craft Recording Software. Welcome to Two Guys Talking Jurassic Park. What do you remember about hype for Jurassic Park as a let's see 20 years well, ago you would have you would have just been jumping into college right Yeah well wait so 1993 you said right Yeah Okay I know I graduated in December of 94 Okay so, so I was just in the right thick pros of finishing finishing okay. school and at yeah. that point for myself let's see right before that the movie came out I had finished up an internship at Boss Film, mm -hmm. which was a special effects company uh, in California, started yeah. by um, Richard Edlund, a former ILM special effects supervisor, yeah. worked on Raiders and Star Wars and all that stuff. So I had wrapped the summer of 92, it's hard for me to remember, it must have been 92, the year before, I did an internship there. So I was like all knee deep into, you know, the world of special effects and the, you know, emerging of computers in that world and how it was, you know, just starting to to touch many more aspects of the special effects world than it initially had touched, which was computer screen displays and stuff like that. And, you know, now it was starting to reach out and do some character animation, but very, very subtle at the time. Mm -hmm. So in, in the ramp up to 93, we were on the brink. Mike, let me ask you, what, what was the Spielberg movie right before Jurassic Park? What had he just done? Oh, it's going to be something like maybe Always? Let me, let me check real quick, Carl. It's kind of important, I think, for us sure. to know what he was coming off of. 
What, what I think you might also mention, Carl, is your time at Boss Film. This is when you were working on Cliffhanger. And, uh, yes. And, and, you know, Cliffhanger had a small amount of digital effects in it, some wire removal and things like that mm-hmm. that they were experimenting with. Boss Film, at that time, they the, the lion's share of digital work that they were toying with was in the way simulator ride event movies, kind of mm-hmm. like Star Tours and... Uh, things of that nature. They had done one for the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas, which was new at the time. And so during my tenure there, I got a a small, small opportunity to be involved in their computer department, really as just an observer as they were wrapping up that project, the Luxor ride film. And that's where they were experimenting with some digital work, some digital futuristic cars and things of that nature. They Mm -hmm. hadn't gotten into character work but, you know, inanimate object work is what they were looking at, and, and wire removal. Like in, in Stallone's movie, they, you know, took out the wires that were holding up himself and the stuntmen and mm-hmm. some of the models and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What did Spielberg direct right before Jurassic Park? Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was 89, then Always, then something called The Visionary, then Hook, then Jurassic oh. Park, and then Schindler's List. Okay, so Hook. Hook. Okay, that's interesting. Hook and then, and you were very close as always. So Hook being being a, a pretty big effects-driven film as well, mm-hmm. but prior to digital age, prior to digital... Okay, wait, wait. Now wait, let me ask one more question. Before yeah, uh-huh. sure. Uh-huh. So where is Terminator 2 in all this? Uh, Terminator 2 was 1990. All right, so we had Terminator 2. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Hook was what year? 1991. One, so a year after Terminator 2. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, okay, that's good. That's, that's good to know. So Steven Spielberg uh, directed Hook in 1991. Mm-hmm. So he's coming off of that going into Jurassic Park. Obviously, at this point, he had seen Terminator 2, which was obviously the beginning of the watershed moment. The watershed, I, I right. I shouldn't really say that. Speaking of watershed moments, pardon the pun, and say obviously the abyss, right, mm-hmm. the abyss was they're mm-hmm. pushing it out there, pushing mm-hmm. out digital with its water tentacle, mm-hmm. or pseudopod, as they called it. Sure. And then from that rolling into Cameron wanting to push it even further with Terminator 2, Silver goes into Hook, which was more traditional special effects. I can't tell you if there were some subtle digital effects in there. There probably were. There probably was wire removal and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's going into Jurassic Park, not thinking at all, really, about using digital effects in any kind of bold way. Right. And we all right. know that. Uh-huh. He was going in with, you know, go motion as the preferred method of bringing the dinosaurs to life, which is a version of stop motion animation. Mm-hmm. And, and they had perfected that. Phil Tippett and his crew at ILM, had, you know, obviously they were at the top of their game. Mm-hmm when it came to stop motion and go motion, what with not only the top of their game as far as technology in that craft, Mm -hmm. but also just with the art of it. So what I mean by that is definitely his team has studied animal movements now for years, Mm -hmm. years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And so he knew, you know, inside and out how animals move, which means that they were obviously that much more perfect candidate for doing their stop motion and go motion work. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the history, which I'm sure anyone who's a fan of Jurassic Park knows that then it was Dennis Muren, another special effects supervisor there, that brought to the forefront the idea for Spielberg, hey, why don't we try, you know, computer animation for this? Mm-hmm. They started to do a bunch of tests. They did some tests with some, the skeleton. 
skeletons of velociraptors running. And upon seeing that, Spielberg was so interested in it that he said, okay, you can proceed to the next phase of this, which was creating a full-blown dinosaur with skin. Mm -hmm. One tiny little thing I'll bring up is just in my research, fandomness of, you know, studying the movie and the behind the scenes and all that way, way long ago, was that there, there actually, there was a little bit of animosity, correct me if I'm wrong, but I could do it differently, but there was a little animosity between the Phil Tippett team and the Dennis Mirren team that was, you know, getting together, the, the two teams that were going to work on Jurassic Park. So Phil Tippett was all set to jump in there with Go Motion, and now Dennis Mirren's kind of stealing his thunder, saying, well, we could do this with, you know, computer animation, and there were some subtle hard feelings there. Well, yeah, the, the, I think the, the bottom line that everyone's got to remember is that upon seeing that, you mentioned the skeletons of the Gallimimus running that initially made Stephen go, well, hold on a second, why don't you try something else? And so the something else became that he wanted to see full-blown Tyrannosaurus Rex with the walking, but then he also wanted it walking with skin, and by the way, I'd like it walking with skin, walking by me. And the instant... yeah that he saw the fully configured, looking around its own shoulders, walking Tyrannosaurus Rex as the perspective camera stops and then walks by him. And when you can see the skin of the dinosaur from four feet from standing next to it, essentially what happened was the entire everything else that wasn't digital, especially for the entire body shots of anything, was abandoned. They, they don't say it in any of the features inside the Blu-rays and DVDs, obviously. But I think the animosity that you might be referring to is something real and palatable, especially inside of a digital effects crew, or a couple of teams of digital effects crews. It's just not mentioned inside of the formal features that are inside of either the Blu-ray for the Jurassic Park stuffs that are come out, or any of the commentaries inside of the feature stuffs that do feature the people from the special effects folks. But that story is one of the big ones inside of the features for Jurassic Park. The It's time to abandon all things go motion and focus specifically on the digital enhancement, along, of course, with the real-life effects from one Stan Winston, who was also coming off of glorious, wonderful showcasing inside of Terminator 2, uh, making the, the seam between those two f technologies and pushes seamless, essentially, especially inside of Terminator 2. Yeah, oh yeah, I, you know, and I, must, I don't know if I read it, or I, I'm pretty sure I saw an interview think with Phil Tippett or whatever, where he kind of, you know, admitted to having hurt feelings over them abandoning the stop motion team sure. and the film motion team and moving to digital. I, I remember that that happening. Now, now Dennis Mirren made good on that by rolling that department into the computer world, right. utilizing all of their knowledge base that mm -hmm. they had had mm -hmm. of animal movement, right. translating that over. Because they used, they still effectively did use go motion but it was with now just mechanical skeletons with wires hooked to their joints that were then fed into the computer so they could use the movement knowledge of the stop motion animators and have that translate directly into the computer model right and, and not really yeah. rely on keyframing and, right. and, and animation techniques that are so prevalent today but yield much less desirable natural movement you know you have to be a really great phenomenal computer animator to actually do really good movement i mean that's a, that's a huge thing it's one thing yeah, to be able to it, make the skin look good and make it look like it's wet and shiny and blah 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 yeah but the moment you start working on movement that's where you need skills like intense you know and that's what the stop motion team has you're absolutely right in fact the keyframe the word key inside of the word keyframe is based on having the key knowledge to deliver what you need to about movement. It was one of the foundational aspects of starting up all kinds of different companies that began to bud out of those first little tiny 
haha water droplets from the water tentacle and everything else that was developed thereafter, the, the word keyframe is now synonymous with what needs to be captured inside of just about any kind of animation in any department, in any company, anywhere. And again, that initial onslaught of stuff that could happen and take things from the real realm of fantasy into what was reality with skin four feet from your face was delivered inside of Jurassic Park. Absolutely. Carl, where do you remember seeing this film? Do you remember which theater you saw it at? Yes, I saw it at the South Shore Cinema in uh, South Side of Milwaukee. Okay, South Side um, of Milwaukee. The same exact, same exact theater that I saw Terminator 2 uh-huh. in. When, okay. uh, and, and upon after seeing that movie, Terminator 2, it was so spectacular. I remember one of my buddies, we were just all absolutely awestruck by the movie that there was a huge line of people waiting outside. And one of my buddies like picked me up and carried me out like over his shoulder like a fireman would Uh and he was like yelling to the crowd the movie is so good that my buddy passed out can we you know can we get an ambulance here he just he couldn't take how good the movie was we had a big laugh over it almost did the same thing we wanted to do the same thing when it came time to see jurassic park we had heard about it and we were expecting you know it to be the thing that the buzz the hype was drumming it up to be went to go see it at the same theater that we saw terminator 2 at yeah i saw this one there was a brand new theater that opened that same year it was the olive 16 here inside of the not inside the formal city of st louis but in a suburb and you know it was spectacular you know gargantuan theater of i think 280 people something it was huge it was huge it was bombastic it featured all kinds of sound it was spectacular and awesome however it was not yet digital we weren't into digital film yet So, again, that drift from what you see inside of DVD into what is now Blu-ray is what we would have seen inside of a giant screen for Jurassic Park back then. Very, very interesting proposition inside the hype of what happens for this movie. I also don't remember, because, again, if you'll remember, Carl, this was the time before really any internet had started to be prolific. There was America Online. There were message boards, the drift inside of being able to convey, you know, different things and rumors about movies. It was not on the internet yet. It was nowhere near being alive as it finally became towards the end of 1998, 1999. And a very, very different world so that you could see pictures of what people were talking about, like what we talked about to begin with inside of the visual effects studios, but they were pictures inside of magazines. There were no internet videos, there was no YouTube, none of that. None of that existed back then, and so again, a very different world for hype back in 1993. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I probably throughout the course of this podcast, old guys like us, or at least I'll speak for myself, I'm going to whack on about the differences of from then to now, and I'm not going to say, oh, it was so much better and blah, 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 because obviously there's so many incredible, wonderful things now and all that stuff. But I guess I'll say things like, I remember being addicted and hooked on the movie magazines of the time, Premier Magazine. Sure, Starlog. And all those, Starlog, all those magazines. And that was our, right, that was our internet. So the moment a magazine came out and you knew it was going to have some stuff in it, you ran and got it. And Newsstand. Followed yeah. it. Uh-huh. Yeah, Newsstand. Wow. You poured over the pictures. There was a ravenous care and desire to want to get super stoked about these movies. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's just because I'm older now and whatnot, but, you know, that we don't really have that in that way. You know, now we have, with the Internet, we have, you know, maybe the release of a trailer and the hope that you can try and get a sneak peek at an early trailer or one shot off of a movie screen at a Comic-Con or stuff like that. It's been replaced with those types of things. There was something that was awesome about just waiting for 
a newsstand to get a magazine in. And you go into the place and say, hey, when do you guys get in your career magazines? When do you get in, you know, Movie Maker Magazine or whatever? And it was, it was awesome. It was fun. It was fun in its own right. I'm sure in the same way that kids are kind of having that same kind of fun with, with what they get today with the Internet. Yeah, well, there's two things I want to mention here. The first thing I want to mention is I actually wrote for one of the world's largest, most prolific movie and TV online news magazines, ScreenRant.com. I wrote for them for a year and a half, and it was absolutely spectacular. I had a great experience. I met a lot of people, got a lot of people to look at my content and download my stuff. It was awesome. However, the one thing that they specialize in is spoiler discussion. And I do join you, Carl, in that the one thing that I do not like, and it's something that we have forbidden here inside of the realm of two guys talking since our inception now over a decade ago to be 11 years in a month, is spoilers. We don't talk about, we don't refer to, we don't ruin movies for people, we don't go and grab details off the internet to shove it into something so that somebody will be spoiled. If there's something that might spoil, we're going to throw in that little tiny protection of spoiler alert and then we'll give them just a couple of seconds to pause the program so that we're not going to blow anything out of the water. Uh, it is sure. a, it is a tenant that I absolutely revere and I wish that more people inside of podcasting would do that. The second, yeah. the second thing that I wanted to mention is that, and I, I hate to admit this in front of Carl because Carl is the one that got me totally absorbed and collected back from day one, every single edition of Cinefix magazine. It, it, it absolutely is. In fact, it still continues to be. And for those that aren't familiar, we're going to put a link inside the show notes for Cinefix Magazine. It is easily the best story-ridden, detail-ridden photographs, all the stuff behind the scenes. If you like anything that is features inside of Blu-ray uh, expressionism, if you like reading articles that were in magazines like Starlog, then you need to stop and drop what you're doing and go to Cinefix.com. Again, we're going to link it up in the show notes for this episode and go and subscribe to the magazine. Now, having said that, I stopped collecting it four years ago. Oh, ouch. I, I did. And, <laughs> and the reason I stopped collecting it because it was offering too many spoilers to what I wanted to see. It came out after, oh, but yeah. having gotten so enthralled in reviewing entertainment, it was an instant spoiler. The other thing that they started to do was they would offer a very steep discount to those that would subscribe online only, i.e. you'll never get, Carl, that paper magazine, the little chubby uh, 75% page, super slick pages. Well, you don't get that anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, I still get the paper one, and I get the digital one as well, just because I'm a fan. Right. I'm a, a big fan of mm -hmm. it. But I really don't, I don't even really look at the digital ones, to be honest. I still, I'm just from the era where I enjoy looking at a physical magazine. Yeah. Like, Still, the few holdouts of people that still like to have a book in their hand. Yeah. There's, to me, there's something fun just about the magazine. To your point, though, I will say, I don't look at Cinefix right away. When I get it, it takes me a month or two to actually look at it because of almost exactly what you said. If I haven't seen the movie, I don't want to see the behind-the-scenes photos right. yet. Absolutely, um, right. Of a film, so I, I hold off on reading. Yeah, and again, spoilers is such a very difficult thing, especially for television, especially for things that are now, you know, a, a really great sample. The most recent one that I can think of is the uh, the review of Daredevil on Netflix that we're doing over at WhatCopsWatch.com. And I, I love that series. I love all the detail, but it's the perfect sample of why spoilers destroy 
if Carl, let's say you and I are very big Marvel fans and we see, Hey, look, daredevil's coming out on Netflix. Awesome. Hey, look, they're offering every single episode of daredevil out on Friday. And by one o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning, one of us has watched it all the way through where one of us might only be on episode two. Okay. That is the destruction of a construct of being able to watch a, a program on either in movie form or inside of television form that is going to it's that is not going to get smaller that's only going to happen more often especially because of how popular it was you can now literally sit down and watch the entire series the day something comes out inside of say a Netflix or a Hulu or any one of the other online processes that you can watch by that is a total paradigm shift for someone like Carl who is not yeah. ready to t- intake that. You know, it's the, wow, it, what is that round thing with spokes for Carl? And yeah. it, it, it's not rare. That, that that feeling is out there. Unfortunately, it is the minority. It is not the majority. And we've, uh, we've now spent the most time, I think, ever in Two Guys Talking History talking about the hype of what we see yeah. <laughs> inside of Jurassic Park. Let's, scoop, let's move on. Let's press on. Sure. Welcome. To two guys talking Jurassic Park. The money. Ah, who doesn't like to talk about money? Especially Mike Wilkerson when it comes to intake for movies, especially huge ones like this one, Jurassic Park 1993. Carl, what do you think this took in domestically total gross? Domestically, oh man, I, I don't know, but I let me let me throw a number out there. Okay. Domestically it took in Hang on, stand by. I'm trying to think of 1993 dollars. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with 220 million dollars. 220 million dollars, just a bit low. The total domestic. Uh-huh. Wait, wait, give me another guess. Oh, okay. All right, guess guess number two, Carl. Please tell me. Uh, one more guess. All right, it took in 340 million dollars. Again, just a bit low. Do you, do you have a third guess, All or do you want me to just start telling people money? No. The total domestic gross for Jurassic Park 1993 was $358 million. Oh, okay. All right. I wasn't super far. I thought you were going to say whatever, like $800 million and I was going to be horribly embarrassed. I, no, I no. We'll, we'll get to the embarrassment part. That's coming. All right. So All the right. domestic lifetime gross for Jurassic Park. Any idea? This is, this, is from, yeah, this is from way back then until now for Jurassic Park. Any idea? Domestic. Oh, my God. Until now? Yeah. Well, from then to now, I'll say, oh, and this is just domestic, not including the international stuff. Right. That's coming. So I'm going to go with $600 million, six to $700 million. Okay. Actually, way over. So the domestic lifetime gross for this is only $402 million, or $402.5 million. Oh, oh okay. Okay. Right. So, yeah, only an extra $50 million. <laughs> Yeah, only. Yeah, only. Carl, I know you love to talk about the foreign intake as well. Do you have any idea what the foreign intake for this was? Yeah, okay, so then I'm going to guess that that was more, usually more. Uh I'm going to guess the foreign intake. So if it was 358, I'm going to say it was was $408 million. Okay, just a bit low. The foreign intake for this total lifetime is $627 million. Yeah, for a, wow. that's a that's a worldwide take lifetime of one billion thirty million dollars. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. a it's a it's a giant chunk of cash, and it's why it is driven 
So many sequels, so many toys, so much branding, so many stories, and of course, so many memories inside of all fans, Jurassic Park. Welcome to Two Guys Talking Jurassic Park. The good. I know we're already running long on this podcast, Carl, but I think everyone should prepare for an exhaustive listing of goods for Jurassic Park 1993 directed by Steven Spielberg. Submersion therapy, thanks to Spielberg. You know what's great inside of a movie when the movie starts off immersing you inside of a jungle where something really, really evil is going on. And that's what we get. You are instantly submerged into the storyline. There's no questions. There's just awe. Whether it's at the music that's used inside of the submersion therapy, whether it's the way too many guys taking care of something what looks way too big for anybody to handle. And then we realize, of course, that it's too big to handle even for this many guys. It's great stuff. It's a great prologue. And it really does put you in place for the entire movie. That's obviously one of Spielberg's specialties is world building. Right. Yes. Well so, said. Um, well you said. Know, he, he, you know, right off the bat, I was surprised. I mean, I was surprised because I, I didn't quite expect it to be so like amusement parky or that part of the story. You know, and I hadn't read the book or anything like that. When it became that, it was like when it was revealed that it was like kind of like this Disneyland mm-hmm. type thing. Mm-hmm. Like at first, I, I it wasn't that I didn't like it, but I was I was surprised. That, oh, that's what this is. Okay, but then. You know, I embraced it in that, oh, it was very cool in how they absolutely tried to recreate the amusement park feel mm-hmm. and, the, and the germination of amusement park. Like, the, like you know, Richard Attenborough being this, like, dinosaur Walt Disney. Yes. You know, and creating yes. the rise and creating, the, creating the, the way that the birth of the dinosaurs explained to you with the cartoons and everything and how so accurate that was to the Disneyland and the great Americas of the era, of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, I have to believe that that's obviously all different. It's been a long time since I've, I've been to Disneyland or whatever, but I imagine, like, that feels probably, you know, antiquated, but that's what they were. That's how they were at the time. And, like, when the guy was, when the lawyer is asking if the scientists behind the glass are, like, are those animatronic, you know, puppets, like what Walt Disney had, like what, what Walt Disney employed so many years ago, the first you know, amusement park to have those types of characters. He just they really nailed, in a in a world building view, uh, what it is to have a ginormous amusement park, mm-hmm. a full blown amusement park. That that was really cool. That was a neat thing to see. Well, I think you struck it as well. The germination of that, the beginning of it, where we the reason Richard Attenborough is bringing in people is because death. <laughs> Not so much to sign off on the park, but because there are speed bumps that he has to overcome. Unfortunately, the speed bumps are death. And what I I really love about the concept of what's happened inside of this initial submersion therapy thing is not just the, the amusement park genre play. I love that, too. But the fact that they take something so common and that, again, I go to speed bump. Well, we've got a speed bump. How do we get over the speed bump? Well, we put on some new shoes and walk over it. And that's the that's kind of the tack that Richard Attenborough's character takes in this because he's got so much invested, so much time invested, so much money invested, and now the initial blood that's been invested inside of it, but he's got to overcome it because there is a bigger dream. 
I I love that within eight or nine minutes of this movie, we're absolutely submerged into it already. The sounds. The true value of sound design. Carl and I will never be shy about two huge things inside of moviedom, in particular when you insert someone like Ben Burt. Ben Burt! Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Especially when you insert someone like Ben Burt or the always present, never going to know what's going to happen when when he dies because it will be a day of mourning for gajillions around the world. When John Williams dies, he is a master His craft inside of this film is showcased wonderfully, and we're going to get more to that later. But the sound design inside of this film is another one of the, I'll steal Carl's words, the watershed moments of being able to take something that is total fantasy, i.e. the sound of a dinosaur, or in this case, multiple dinosaurs, and take it from nothing to absolutely grounded to now iconic. You and I hear the whistle toots of a raptor, we don't need to see a picture of anything at this point. You and I instantly know that that, that crying whistle mix of uh, whistle, uh, nail on chalkboard, and a dolphin, that is the Velociraptor. Whether it sounded like that or not, it doesn't make any difference, yeah. but that's the sound that is now inside the audio iconography of what happens inside of dinosaurs. Hearing the Tyrannosaur, yeah. the original Tyrannosaur, that trumpet. <laughs> That they use. It was a mix of an elephant, a bear, a lion, and several other awesome things. Well, you instantly hear that and you go, oh yeah, Tyrannosaur. And then all of the other dinosaurs that they've made, they all have their own signature stuffs that we're frankly using here as tones inside of this perspective review to reveal who they are, what is coming, to instill fear. When you mix it in with the soundtrack, it is an absolute guide to emotion. And sound design is integral to something like Jurassic Park when you're bringing alive that that isn't. Yeah, absolutely. You have to believe, and it has to sound like it's happening, like it's coming from that either A, CGI character, or B, animatronic character Mm -hmm. in the environment. And Mm -hmm. and that's something that I think that a lot of people are, are not necessarily like privy to the ins and outs of sound design, of how challenging it is to make something that is not there sound like it is there. With the dinosaurs and everything, it's it was great because those were sounds that we were not really privy to before. Those were new mm-hmm. dinosaur sounds mm-hmm. that were that were coming out. But anybody, in my opinion, almost anybody can tell when they hear bad ADR, what, what they refer to as audio dialogue replacement. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear it, and you know when a character's talking, and then all of a sudden, suddenly there's a slight different change in pitch or tone in the way he's talking or she's talking, and that's, you know, ADR. That's when they've had to, you know, loop in audio because either there was a hit on the microphone or for whatever reason the line wasn't recorded properly at the moment Mm -hmm. you can all tell when it happens in movies Mm -hmm. and one of the great things about uh, you know the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park is that if you just like when the one guy is being eaten the uh what Newman from Seinfeld is being eaten you know when that creature is playing with him and toying with him you know it just really you believe it. You believe that that thing is right there and it is making those sounds because of the craft, the depth of skill with which they were able to, you know, make fake sounds sound as if they're right there on set with those people. Yeah, and I think you you hit a you hit on a really big point that I know we've forgotten to talk about inside of sound design, and and it's the where the sound is happening. 
that you you struck on that I know is missing in just about every film. There's a especially after digital effects started to get really really big and fat and being able to collect a lot of money for people and, and budgets for filmmaking. What would happen was you'd have let's say it was a dinosaur inside of some other movie. What would happen is you'd have a dinosaur that was inside of a cave, and instead of having a dinosaur sound like it was a dinosaur and that it was inside a cave. It would just be this big rumbling dinosaur sound. Well, when a dinosaur is in a cave, you need to represent the dinosaur sound inside of a cave. Yeah. And while that is a very small thing, it ends up being a very big thing, especially for people that know anything about sound. In that, uh, let's uh, let's steal Jurassic Park's thunder here a little bit. We're going to talk about it later, but the, the kitchen scene at the end, the raptors, when they're walking around on those steel uh, countertops, or when they're even making sound inside of this room that's full of steel, well, that sound is going to echo. It's not going to be a flat yeah. sound. It's not going to be a sound right in front of you. It's going to be a sound that is away from you. In fact, away and low right, because in the picture, it's low right and away from you. And the velociraptor's coning his, his head upwards. And so the sound of that's going to go up and over you, because that's how the sound would work. And that they've been able to generate that kind of sound and that kind of placement with it, that is brilliance in the making for sure. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. It, it is as awesome. It should be noted that it should be as awesome as the visuals, too. I mean, it, they both work in complete and utter concert yeah. with each other to bring the illusion to life. A look at Amber. Now, Carl, believe it or not, I think I went through my adult life until I was 23 when this movie came out. And never heard the word amber in that, you know, amber, the kind of hardened, gelled over sap from ancient trees. I'd never heard that yeah. ever in my life. Yeah, I can't say that I have either that I knew about it. This is this really brought that that concept to the forefront. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was amazing. I thought that the the whole concept of what's going on here in science was wonderful. And again, when you look at the writer, Michael Crichton, and the detail that he's provided to this and a number of other really, really great films inside of screenplays, it really is tremendous. And it's something that you don't see often. You know, I'm trying to remember what other movie I've seen recently where it brings up a science concept that I hadn't either thought of or seen in a movie or something, something totally original. And Amber, inside of this movie, my opinion, was totally original. Yeah. Yeah, they struck, they struck gold with that concept. A look at the cast. For example, the man holding the amber. Did you recognize that actor? I know you've seen this movie recently, but I don't know if you'll be able to place him or not. Uh, yes. The, well, wait a minute. Are we talking about the, the um, Asian actor in no, the science lab? No, we're not talking about Dr. Wu. We're talking about the... Yeah, he's actually not named, and he's not referred to after the very first segment of the movie. But it is the uh, the Latino gentleman that welcomes the blood-sucking lawyer across on that, that little floating thing that he gets dragged across a river on. Que lindo. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, that, that, that guy was has been in a variety of things, but where I remember him from was Clear and Present Danger. He's the guy that played the, the cartel baddie inside of that film. And I love it when movies, especially as prolific as Jurassic Park, dig in to go and find great actors for nothing roles. I know it's not slight in budget, but it really does pay off inside of me watching a feature film. And it was exactly the same inside of this one. From stem to stern, whether we're talking about Sam Neill as Dr. Alan Grant, or that dude, that Latino dude, that simply talks and then looks coyingly 
into the amber as we pan to another scene. This is a very, very robust cast that literally does not stop. You've got Sam Neill yeah. on top as Dr. Grant. You've got Laura Dern, who reminds me wonderfully of my Aunt Debbie, who yeah, I, I love Laura Dern's expressions inside of this movie because it is my Aunt Debbie. Uh, you got Jeff Goldblum. You got Jeff Goldblum as Doctor Ian Malcolm, which is I, I don't even. It's not just a character. Jeff Goldblum created a paradigm when he created that character because I've seen people try to emulate a Doctor Ian Malcolm in other movies, and it's usually not very successful. You know why? Because it's not Jeff Goldblum. That's why. Yeah, I you know I, I have to say Jeff Goldblum is my favorite actor in in the entire film. Like I could watch his performance over and over again. He is, you know, he, he, he's the reason why he's fantastic is because you 100%, 100% believe he is that character and everything he's saying. And when he's not that character, like when he's not playing a part in a movie, like I, in my head, I want to believe, oh, he is that smart, that he would know those things. And the way he talks about it, and the way he talks about it in regards to, and this is part and parcel to the writing too, is that his character is torn between the morality of what they're doing with the science, the fact that it's Jeff Goldblum doing it is just so spot on and perfect. The other actors are, are great, too. I'm not taking anything away from them, but I'm saying that Jeff, the, the naturalness with which he conveys his character's knowledge is 100% flawless. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. In fact, what I really loved about him is what when it you know when he's essentially drugged up, you can kind of tell that he's trying to waft away the fog around his brain to convey what he's saying. He he is an actor's actor, having been and continuing to be an actor myself. It is grand to see Jeff Goldblum even as he continues to age as an actor because I buy Jeff Goldblum. And I would buy stock yeah. in Jeff Goldblum if he went public today. <laughs> he's he's yeah. outstanding, and inside this movie, he really does bring that uh, the 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 genuineism you're referring to. And frankly, it's why he resonated inside the second film. This is this this, this review has nothing to do with the second film, obviously, but he is what resonated inside the second film for me, no question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then we've got Sir Richard Attenborough, who unfortunately died. But the, the character that he brings across, he is the mix of the rich grandpa, he is the mix of Santa Claus, he is the mix of Walt Disney, and unfortunately he is also the incarnation of Oppenheimer. And it works. Oh, yeah. It works wonderfully. He is there, he cares about the family that's coming to visit him that are going to help round out this perfect picture of what I want to create for you. Except it doesn't happen. And even going to his grave inside of the, the movie the, the movie trilogy, uh, off screen, obviously, even in the trilogy, he wanted it for all to work. And it just didn't. Great stuff. The, yeah. the, the cast yeah. continues. Yeah. The cast continues on with Samuel L. Jackson, with, uh, again, B.D. Wong, you referred to him, uh, Henry Wu, who was the only character that was migrated over inside of the most recent Jurassic World film. You've got Dennis Nedry, played by Wayne Knight, who nobody ever remembers that his name is Wayne Knight. They don't remember that his name is Dennis Nedry in the film. What do they remember, Carl? Newman. It's Newman. <laughs> Newman. Hey, what's going on? Newman. Yeah. He's doomed. <laughs> but every movie that he's in, when he plays this guy, it all works. It works wonderfully. It's incredibly thick. There are a whole bunch yeah. of other people, and again, we're just running long inside of this review, but... 
when they built the cast for this film, they built strong, they built thick, and more importantly, they built right. <laughs> Hating computers and guns. Uh, not so much. For anyone that's listened to two guys talking for any length of time, you'll know that I love guns. Uh, I love learning more about different types of guns. I love watching gun reviews on YouTube. I even love having people that love to use guns inside my studio to tell you why and how things work with firearms because, ding, 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 education is everything. Those of you that hate guns and think that everybody's going to die because of guns, shame on you. You should go and listen to more Two Guys Talking content, in particular, the perspective review of 1999's The Matrix, where we actually feature a dynamic firearms weapons trainer and a complete breakdown on every single weapon inside that film. It's wonderful stuff. You get to learn something you would have never learned, nor will you learn anywhere else, only because of two guys talking. Carl, do you love guns? I do. Good, good. I do. Yeah. And we're going to have links yeah. to everything that I've talked about, as well as all of the weapons over at the Internet Movie Firearms database listed inside the show notes for this episode. So I was going to say, yeah, I, I, I'm critical. I am critical of guns in movies and, uh, and the sound effects that go with them and which ones work and which ones don't, in my, <laughs> in my humble opinion. Like, the, the two best examples, I, I just will say, and I always talk about Jurassic Park, they don't really fire a lot of weaponry in it. They have the shotguns in there. But, like, obviously the quintessential, the ultimate movie for guns and the sounds that they make is, for sure, the first, the original RoboCop. Yes. <laughs> so, I'm just doing a shout-out to RoboCop. That's all. Yeah, which is another one that we've got to go back and visit. I had totally intended to visit that when they had that, accidental movie called RoboCop a couple of years ago. I don't remember when it was. But there is a perspective review of the original RoboCop that, Carl, if you want to jump in on that, I'm more than willing to have you there along with, and I don't think Carl knows this, but there's another podcast in the network now called WhatCopsWatch.com, where it's me yeah. and another wonderful podcaster who happens to be the assistant chief at a local police department who run through all kinds of awesome stuff not always uh, does it have to do with cops and guns and stuff, but when it does, it's awesome. In fact, the uh, perspective review of Heat is actually coming up here in uh, just a couple of weeks' time. And that one will be another one for the ages where we're going to be welcoming uh, uh, Paul Bastine, who is actually the owner of a local firing range called Ultimate Defense. I'll be sure to link up what we did with him, which was the uh, the most prolific firearms in TV and movie history podcast that was volume number one of many again that's probably something you should jump in on carl because i know you love you some sure. guns inside of movies and tv sure yep absolutely the concept of they were birds and where we stand today now i kind of cackle at this because i think jurassic world got some crap because many of the dinosaurs didn't have a, a, a far enough lean to turning into birds it's not really a, a valid complaint, in my opinion, um, but it is. This movie was the very first movie to push us towards, you know what? Looks to me like dinosaurs actually evolved into birds, or at least many of them, not all of them. But yeah, that, that, I do love that. I mean, wasn't the real, wasn't the real archaeologist that Sam Neill was based on, wasn't he really pushing that theory? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, they even, uh, they even mentioned... Uh, backer inside of this and he's another one that had a completely different theory but 
there's uh, you know there's always been and there's always going to be the fight of what actually happens with evolution and I love this again. This, it reminds me very much of the Amber comment that we had previously in that this was the first time I'd ever heard that. And it may have just been because I was a 23-year-old that knew everything that really knew nothing. But I, I liked dinosaurs when I was a kid, but never did I dig into the content of dinosaurs until Jurassic Park. And that's something that was a giant, prolific thing about what actually happened to the dinosaurs. Did they just, you know, one day they were alive... Meteor hits, next day everybody's dead, time goes by, man shows up. No, not really. And uh, that yeah. that concept is there and able to be talked about is because of Jurassic Park. There's no question. The claw. We're not talking about the claw machine. We're talking about the claw that Sam Neill's character holds inside of this. And you'll note that it, I, I guess it was a baby claw <laughs> because the one that's on the rubber suits with the guys and uh, with their legs in it at the end of this, dude, it's way thicker than what the, what the oh. doctor was holding claw wise. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much a nitpick, but I wanted to make sure we mentioned that the claw is, you know, it looks devastating inside of Dr. Alan Grant's hand, but it's nothing compared to the claws that are on the velociraptors at the end. Now, granted, the velociraptors are being put through a completely different growth, birth, and evolution process because they are not actually dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs, asterisk, based on the insertion of stuff inside of their genome with something that should have never been there to begin with. So I, I get it, guys. Don't send me hate mail about whining about the claw. I just wanted to make sure that I noted that. Sure. Meeting Dodgson and a shaving cream can on the way to industrial espionage. This is something that Carl talked about previously that I love to always reference back, especially inside of Steven Spielberg films. World building that helps create the, the, the construct that the story is then wrapped around and then showcased to an audience. All of this scene, it's a very short scene, it's not long at all, um, but it helps build the process of why, all the, why are all the characters here? Why is there an amusement park made with dinosaurs? Why is there a couple of doctors coming to investigate? Why did a dude get eaten by a dinosaur? Well, this is why. This is the central core of the story, and I don't think a lot of people know that. The, uh, the, the original core for this story is this industrial espionage. Industrial espionage happens on a daily basis, especially now, with the prolific ties that the Internet allows into every company on the planet currently. And so to showcase this, except scooting it back a couple of notches to even back past what James Bond would be doing, was a big deal back then, and I love being able to revel in it back in 1993, looking back at it now from 2015. Yeah, the Barbasol can. <laughs> I mean, that's just, so, that's just so cool. Yeah. What's even cooler, I, I think, if you watch that scene, is the sound effects that Ben Burt applied to it when it pops open. <laughs> it's, it's so cool. And then the insertion of the embryos in there, and then you close it up, and it still spits out shaving cream. Yeah, I mean, it's just an absolutely fun Concept. Yeah, it's it's a fun piece. It puts a puzzle piece in for Newman and allows us to get dragged on this adventure and frankly leads to the next adventure inside the series. I don't even know that they knew that when they made that scene that they were actually providing the, the germ moment, uh, the germination moment for another movie. Um, but it is. The, the stuff gets off the island and that's how. Yeah. There it is. A soundtrack arrives. Now, this is not the brontosaurus moment. We're going to get to that. But as the helicopter flies into 
the island. This is when the soundtrack raises its head and trumpets wildly. Uh, again, absolute brilliance by John Williams. Stuff that I really do think this is some of his best stuff. This and E.T. really do get me emotionally when I hear it. Yeah, they're just, I mean, it, it's amazing that he could have so many hits, you know, one right after another after another that strike a chord in uh, you know the popular culture of the movie audience it just like just nails it it just nails it yeah. one after the other after the other yeah and again just another tease for everyone we are going to have before he dies asterisk a, a focus on the movie the music the man john williams via two guys talking it's going to be great and it's actually our first call to the audience which of the many soundtracks that John Williams has had in his life is the one that makes you remember that it's John Williams providing the music? Let us know what you think by going over to twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. Click on the contact area on the top right-hand side of the page. Fill out the quick web form and tell us which one is the most memorable for you. I can throw an answer out there myself. Yeah. The one that I go back to, it's not the one you think, you know, so much that I, you know, I love Star Wars so much and Raiders. No, the one that gets me is Superman, the original Superman theme. Yeah, it's, it's the one that literally the word Superman is inside of the song. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 amazing. Uh, that is an amazing one. That also is another one that instantly generates a tear in my eye, remembering back to 1979 when that film came out, where you literally now can watch a man fly. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And the branding beginneth. As the helicopter lands, we finally see for the very first time the appropriately colored Jeeps that are on the left-hand side of the, of the helicopter, and thus branding begins. I know that we have had, in fact, we can go back to 1977, with the Star Wars action figures that I still have to this day and talk about how toys and awesome were out there. I totally agree with that. But Jurassic Park literally helped branding take on to a new level. You get to see the store inside of Jurassic Park that has all kinds of Jurassic Park stuff and kitsch and baubles and whatever else. The difference is that you could then, at the same time, walk into a toy store and see exactly the same real stuff that all of us could buy. Yeah, I mean, they did. It, it's so clever in that, you know, they do that. They give you it. They show it to you in the movie, and then they show it to you, uh, you know, at, at Universal Studios tour mm -hmm. and all that stuff so you can yeah. go in and, and here and have that same experience. But the, the real piece de la resistance on the whole concept of how branding is shown in the movie is that they actually make fun of it. They actually disparage it. And by they, I mean it's the scene with what's the, you know, from the writers to all the way through to Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Goldblum, when he says, you know, before you even knew what you had, you've packaged it and you've slapped it on a lunchbox. And, you know, and he says this very forcefully as he's pounding on the table mm -hmm. to basically say, you know, you're just in this for the money and the merchandising and look at what you're doing. You don't even know what you have, mm -hmm. but yet you're merchandising it. It's showing that trying to make the point of how merchandising is like it, it com travels in completely the opposite direction of the, the, the humbleness that you're supposed to have given the power of this particular science and the use of it. And this him trying to, Jeff Goldblum painting the picture that Richard Attenborough is trying to make a nickel off this. And that's really great. That's really a, a one, I mean, not only is it condemning it, but then at the same time, it's 
same time, it's actually pushing it out there and saying, you know, well, this, I do want to get that lunchbox for my kid, even though, uh, you know, I, I know they're poking fun at it and whatnot, and they're doing it in such a clever way that I want to be a part of this universe, and therefore I'm going to buy the T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, I, 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 I totally agree with you. I work with a lot of people that call themselves uh, branding experts. It's something that's happened here inside of the, the, the middle 2000 teens, and I understand the concept of branding. What I don't understand is how someone that knows a lot about branding of other things can instantly come along and be a instant, knowledgeable, know everything about another brand that they know nothing about. Uh, I get that characteristics bleed over into other things, but there's something missing from the concept of I am a brand expert when you don't know anything about the brand. And I mean, like not even read up about it or read the brochure or you just happen to show up and hear a couple of things and now your brain begins and your mouth starts. I have a real problem with that. And I always have since I've heard the, the words brand specialist or I'm a professional maker of brands. You know, I, I get that, but let's see what brands you've made. Because you know what you didn't make? You didn't make Jurassic Park. <laughs> I, I want to <laughs> see some real brands. And then we'll start talking about just how big a, a master brander you are. It's it's the terribly frustrating piece of what I have in regard to having a, an internet job and finding a way for people to deliver unique and skill set based messaging inside of podcasting. Well, I am a professional of that, and I'll show you thousands of hours where I've done it. And that's what I'm looking for from people that label themselves as a brand agent. <laughs> Understanding the lay of the land. To go back to Carl's point again, where we talk about world building inside the realm of Spielberg, this is something else that he almost always knocks out of the park. Whether it's actually Spielberg being in charge of it or a series of writers or people inside the screenplay, I'm not entirely sure. But just about every Spielberg-based film helps you to understand the lay of the overall land that the characters are running around in or using as a, a buttress or a boundary. And this one is outstanding. You guys all understand that we're all on an island, right? Yep. You guys all understand that on the island there are fences, right? Mm-hmm. You guys all understand that there are areas that people are supposed to go and can go, right? Uh-huh. You guys know that there are cars that kind of drive around by themselves, right? Mm-hmm. You guys know that there are areas that only the dinosaurs can be in, right? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. You guys understand that all of the systems that control everything I've just told you are on the fritz, right? Yep. <laughs> and yeah. Spielberg is able to do that and create it within, I, Carl, I kid you not, minutes. Yeah, it, it's one thing to be able to do that through people just talking, which, of course, that is the main way with which you get your information, you know. But Spielberg does it in such a way that it does not allow for such horrible naked exposition when characters just sit there and explain something to the audience and they just they just drone on and on. You know, he does it in a very clever way where he is always trying to have either somebody's explaining something to you at the same time while they're showing you and mm -hmm. while they're depicting it and everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and the, the very clever way of using the ride film you know, as a way of explaining the whole thing to the audience and, and get that whole concept out there to the audience in a, a, a fun, clever way, but a way that works within the confines of the plot is appropriate to the story. And you don't feel like you've just had a lecture. You know, you do, you do feel like this is a, an integral part of this world. 
Yes, I totally agree with that. I couldn't. I, I have nothing else to add to that. It it is what I love continually about Steven Spielberg movies. It it's always there. It's something I can bet on. And when they start wrapping in technology and pseudoscience, and then they layer it on because it's not just one thing that they explain to us. Uh, in addition to explaining the island's concept, they also have to explain how the dinosaurs were made. They have to explain why amber is at all referred to. In fact, the the amber stuff when you when you first see that that giant mosquito inside the first amber, I didn't really get it for the first couple of times that I was watching that that's what kind of what they were tapping. That was the that was the engine of this whole thing. They have found enough amber and enough mosquitoes that they've been able to extract a number of different dinosaurs from the different number of mosquitoes. I didn't even cue into that until maybe, I don't know, I got the DVD of Jurassic Park. That's how cool it is. I understood what they were doing, but I didn't really understand it until, I, until later on. I love that. I love that when movies deliver me something different. Yeah. The land suddenly becomes a showcase and a soundtrack arriveth. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about, look at the dinosaurs, look at this movie, look what they have now provided to us in the form of one of our favorite dinosaurs, the Brontosaurus, as well as the real soundtrack arriving. This is the, and it doesn't matter how many years go by, Carl, I'm not kidding. I just finished watching this this afternoon, making these detailed notes. And inside this scene, again, I get the tearing up proud moment of being able to watch a dinosaur for the first time. It's that powerful. You know, it, it does. It, 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 it hits you in the same way that it hits Sam Neill. Yes. And the characters yes. that are actually watching it. You, 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 you know, you truly, truly are sharing a moment with a movie character as the two of you are seeing this creature move and, and have it look so good and so real. Yeah. That is a huge monumental achievement. Uh, it is, and I love that you're re- focusing on the word sharing inside of this, because that's exactly what it is. We become the character of Sam Neill and Dr. Ellie What's-Her-Face, and that, w- wait a minute, w- what is it you've done here? How, how, how did you do this? We join in that moment of absolute disbelief, but hey, there it is. It is monumental and a moment that always affects me hugely. And yeah, so- and when he says, you know, how do you do this, and he says, I'll show you, you so want him to show you. You're yes. Like, yeah, show us. Yes. It's funny that you said that because the next point I had was how do, how do you how did you do this? And it is a, another Spielberg specialty. It is what leads you almost always into a very effects-rich dance inside of more exposition that you don't actually recognize as an exposition scene because you're being entertained. Yeah. It's brilliance. It is brilliance. It is Spielberg, and it is in every single one of his offerings. It is why I love Steven Spielberg as a director. Yeah, absolutely. That's his specialty. Let's talk effects. All right, this is it, Carl. We can always mention more as they come up inside of my other notes, but this is where I want us and the audience to open up the faucet about effects inside of this movie. Now, obviously, we just got done looking at and talking about the brontosaurus. Oh, my God, there's a dinosaur. For the very first time in 1993, everyone saw their first dinosaur, and it was that brontosaurus inside this film. Well, I have to, I have to say that just like on a, on a broad stroke level is that what, what happened with Jurassic Park and prior to that Ter- Terminator 2, you know, the, the two, those two films handled a concept a special effects concept so well that we haven't seen it handled like that well 
until we get to, this is just my personal opinion, until we get to, like, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And, and that concept is that it's a mixture of computer animation mm-hmm. and practical special effects on set, whether it's animatronic or miniatures or what have you. They were forced to have a collaboration amongst all those special effects art forms, all those, all those different departments were forced to work together because CGI at the time could not just, just consume and just take over every single department and every single thing is done inside the computer, right? They, they had to have Stan Winston do the big head, you know, so that it could interact with actors and so on and so forth. And they, had, they just had to have that stuff due to the technology at the time. And that was wonderful. That was spectacular. That was fantastic. In Terminator 2, they had to have real practical T-1000 effect mixing in with computer animated effects. And then it's after these movies that we start to see CGI consume the movie as a whole. Yes. Um, and that's when we start to have, you know, lackluster effects moments that are just not impressive anymore. And that just, do, they do not impress the audience. And they wash over the audience in just a, oh, it's like a video game way. Mm-hmm. It becomes a big video game. And there's, you just see like a loss of passion, visual passion is just drained from effects-driven films shortly thereafter, you know, in this era, into the early 2000s. So what Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 do is they do what Lord of the Rings finally brought back to us, which was a mixture of phenomenal CGI and on-set practical effects with makeup effects and miniatures and all of them working in concert to give you a visual, you know, an environment that is incredibly rich. Yes. Uh, as opposed to sterile, which we've seen with films like the the three, the first three Star Wars movies that Lucas did, you know, Phantom Menace and all that stuff, when they have their cold, sterile video game-like presence. Jurassic Park had that. It, it was forced to have it, um, and now we've, we, we're getting back to that, and J.J. Abrams is going back to that as well with the, the new Star Wars films, as we all know. Anyway, that's, that, to me, is what is the comment, the main comment of historically looking back at Jurassic Park from an effect standpoint, that's the comment that, to me, is so relevant to today. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. The I'm absolutely certain that because Stan Winston and his crew were involved in this, I, it, it's a splashing of awesome for me to begin with. We, we look at anything that's generated effects-wise, whether it's the animatronic heads of the Tyrannosaurus Rex or the Velociraptors, whether it's the bleeding, I'll say seamlessly, I think that the, the Tyrannosaur paddock scene, the, the seamless step back and forth between digital and real, it, back then it was the pinnacle. The stuff that happened yeah. inside of Terminator 2, I have a larger bleed and interest in because James Cameron is involved. But the craft that happened inside the paddock, the Tyrannosaur paddock scene inside of Jurassic Park, no question, top of the game. The, it was the top of the game. Even uh, yeah. e- even compared to the, the Tyrannosaur showing up at the end of this film and laying waste to the Velociraptors, that still didn't touch what happened inside the Tyrannosaur paddock. And it's because well, yeah. h- how many movies have now grafted on the Tyrannosaur chasing behind a vehicle as something inside of their lexicon as a movie. Yeah. When you do something great and you do it right and people love it, they're going to try and showcase something of that inside their film. And it's been done hundreds of times now inside of movies. Well, it's, it's been done hundreds of times inside of movies, and it's been hu- done hundreds of times in movies since incredibly poorly. Yes. Incredibly, <laughs> yeah. phenomenally 
poorly. Yeah. Look at any crappy dragon or giant snake chasing somebody. I mean, they look like, I won't swear, uh, they look like garbage. <laughs> no, it, it's crap. I, it, it, it's 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 definitive crap. Yeah. It's where someone said, okay, we need a 3D snake. Can you make one? Yes. Great. I want the 3D snake to go from one direction to this direction, all inside of camera, and then I want to snap to another camera view, and I want to see the, the snake end eating somebody. Ready and go. Push buttons and render. That's what that has become. And just just glossed across it real quick there, but the early 2000s, they are rife with movies that I won't say stole the technology from Jurassic Park because it was terrible, but they utilized the technology that did exactly what I just said, where they want they want the creature, whatever it is, to appear inside a frame over this away. And then the actor's going to dive out of the way. You're going to make the creature fly over that that actor. You're going to make sure that the shadow's put appropriately. Then the camera's going to appear in another direction while that person's on the ground. It's going to loop back around and then drop its its venomous jaws across the top of their body and bite them in half. Ready? And let me see it. Is it done yet? That's what we had. That's what we had. And it, you're absolutely right. It was crap. It was terrible. It makes it very difficult to watch a movie like Anaconda. Because you have a lot of potential inside of a movie like that. But what I just said happened at least 10 times inside that movie. And it takes yeah. the the realm of possibility of there being this gargantuan snake that's going to ensnare and eat everybody instantly and makes it a farce. It, it's a cartoon. And it's not yeah. fun. It, it, it takes the, the disbelief pill you have and shoves it down your throat and you end up choking instead of taking it and being able to roll with it. Yeah, yeah, it's the caring, the caring. Once, once you lose caring, you've completely lost the battle. You've lost the audience. And I, once the audience is like, oh, well, whatever, that's not fair because it's just a CGI thing, and I know the hero is going to get away from it or whatever because it's just a CGI thing that's not really there because, you know, well, we could go on and on about the Uncanny Valley and all the movement and what, why there are so many bad CGI movies. There is treasure troves of garbage out there that we've been inundated with <laughs> yes. from, a, from a CGI standpoint, where yeah. I'm so glad that the audience as, as a whole is saying, we're tired. We're just tired of it, just for F's sake. Well, this is garbage. And that, that's one of the main reasons you're seeing this resurgence of going back to real onset effects and as much you know reality as you can get into it because it's, it's good for not only the audience it's good for the actors and the people the filmmakers and stuff that are both just relying on on the computer all the time and it just it doesn't quite get there you always still feel it's a computer effect i mean there, there there are certain things that do look really good there's certain things where they've really nailed it there's moments in i was prepared to absolutely loathe the new planet of the apes movies because they went full cgi with the apes i have to admit i did not loathe them i, I think there was a lot of things that they did right with those cgi apes and i tip my hat to them for doing some of those things for the very first time yeah, what um, something I'll mention. Yeah, something I'll mention about that just real quick about the most recent Planet of the Apes film, Dawn, I guess, of the Planet of the Apes. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yep. Uh, what I totally want to admit to you, and I know this because I am a former sign language interpreter, certified sign language interpreter, is that they actually took sign language and 
they didn't dummy it down, but they took what is real sign language and laid it across those apes talking. So it's yeah. not it's not human sign language. It's being used by the apes. But there's enough lexicon of sign language that was used inside of the generation of the apes that were never in actual screen. It's it is tremendous, and it conveys language the way that it's supposed to, as opposed to yeah. the apes being able to convey instant human-based sign language. And that they bothered to do that and could pull that off inside of a completely digital realm. I call all kinds of awesome on that. Anyway, the, Yeah, now, that, I didn't know that. That's something that is very unique, that you had that history. Yes. Uh, to know that. What a, what a great thing that they... They, they were true to it, and you picked up on that, and all the people that, that know sign language would pick up on that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's an instant silent audience grab. <laughs> You'll note that those movies are very well, both of them, frankly, are very well taken up, and they obviously have to have a great underground deaf audience because not only can you have, uh, you, you can't get the sentence structure that the apes are trying to give as you can just read it across the screen. But there is, there is context there. And if they bothered to do that inside of that film, I call all kinds of awesome. I, I just, I want to see that care. It leads directly back to that care that you were talking about. I want to see way more of that than not. The doors and halls that pitch to the largest grossing movie in summer blockbuster history. So we walk through the halls of that original Jurassic Park museum piece and we then see it again quick spoiler alert for those that haven't seen jurassic world you get to see that inside of jurassic world and it is the bookends uh, carl talked about lord of the rings and there being bookends and making sure that the story doesn't suck and that the effects are solid well that's exactly what is thrown through here inside the first one to the last one or at least the most recent one and i love that they bothered to do that i the the care that that requires in initiating something like that, that then is harkened back to, that's good filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. I do really wish I would have seen Jurassic World in preparation for this, just to, to be able to have the street cred to talk about, <laughs> about both those. And uh, you know what? And as, as horrible as I have heard it is, I've heard only bad reviews. I have not heard one good review. I still want to see it. I still want to see it. I especially probably still want to see it in regards to this podcast. Uh -huh. now, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. When you need to, yeah, yeah, you, you, you need to. It. The 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 fact that it is top grossing doesn't mean that it's all kinds of awesome. It means that it is top grossing. Uh, I would tell you to see this movie because there's there is value in it. It does not fall apart in the third act. There are other pieces where it does fail, but it is a it is a definitive popcorn movie for a very hot July of 2015. I I, I didn't have any problem buying that part of it. Yeah. I'll go for sure. Yeah, yeah, and you should, as should everybody. Uh, for those of you that don't want to go or haven't seen either any, frankly, any of the sequels of Jurassic Park, go and see them. Uh, grab the DVD or, uh, frankly, grab the Blu-ray. You'll get a lot out of the Blu-ray presentations out of all of the very first Jurassic Parks because they were that good. They really do hold up. Well, and there's value to be gained by seeing something that doesn't work to, to a certain degree. If, if you're a film fan, like if you're not, if you're my wife, she's like, well, I just... I'll never get those minutes back. Uh, you know? <laughs> but, if, but if you're a film fan, knowing what works and what doesn't work is great, is, is power. That's knowledge. Yes. And so, so there, there's definitive value to that. And there are things that don't work in Jurassic Park, at least for me in Jurassic Park, that I'm sure we're going to talk about. But, I mean, there's things that, you know, within the confines of a great movie that it's, 
if it's not working for you, then it's just not working for you. And that's, that's the way it is. Right, right. Meeting Dr. Malcolm and the theory of life finding a way. Now, we've already talked about Dr. Malcolm and how he is all kinds of awesome, specifically because he is Jeff Goldblum. So we get that. But the theory of life finding a way is something I wanted to make sure that we talked about, too, because it's what propels the rest of all of this franchise. Yeah, true. And, well, you know, life finding a way, and I'll, I'll couple that with Laura Dern's comment of it's not as powerful as life finds a way. Great. That's a great quote and everything, and it's awesome. But I, what I do like in regards to life finding a way is when she says, for all intents and purposes, you know, life, she's referring to the plants, you know, these plants will, these life forms will defend themselves violently if necessary. So life finds a way not only to succeed, but, or to, you know, to, to, to live and to grow and to have a birth, but also to defend itself. Mm -hmm. And that's from the plants to the dinosaurs to whatnot. That is such a, a great truism that is at the core of the story. That's why the story is so great, is because it's man tampering with stuff that he thinks he's got a control over, but he's, all these scientists, Jeff Goldblum and Sam Neill, they're all saying, no, you don't have control over it. And then it's proven in the end, of course, to the audience's delight that you're right, we don't have control over this stuff, and, uh, and, we're, and, and we're screwed because of it. Yeah. So the life finding a way is such a great, it's such a peaceful notion, but at the same time, it's a propellant for, you know, visceral action that is not so peaceful. The feeding scene. This really works. And it really does speak to, along with the blood-sucking lawyer getting eaten and chomped in half, allusion to that happening, not being seen on screen. But the, the feeding scene is another piece of classic Spielberg that I absolutely love. Uh, it also instantly spills into the vein of another movie that must be reviewed here at Two Guys Talking, Jaws. Because for all intents oh, yeah. and purposes, and this has been documented in a variety of different magazines, including Cinefax, Jurassic Park is Jaws on land. And it yeah. really does get showcased inside of scenes like the feeding scene. You've got this, you know, hey, look, a, a black, it's not a bull. Yeah, a black bull, you know, a yak or whatever it is that's inside of this ridiculous harness that's being lifted into inside of this little area that the velociraptors can't get out of. And then hilarity ensues. <laughs> I mean, it's it's raw, it's visceral, it's horrifying. And then, of course, the benefactor says, who's ready to eat? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that that, you know looking at your buddy sitting in the seat next to you where you kind of laugh, but you're not really laughing because it's not really funny. Uh, that is Spielberg, and it is Spielberg inside of, I think, at least five or six times inside of Jaws. Uh, yeah. Jaws is a yeah, wonderful, yeah. wonderful film, and that they're able to graft a bunch of those same moments inside of this is really, really special. Absolutely. The blood-sucking lawyer comment. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this is awesome. great. I actually have a couple of blood-sucking lawyers on the network, actually. Uh, they work inside of a podcast called The Scammer Cast, and they help those that take care of elders and elders themselves defend against scammers. So they're the good kind of blood-sucking lawyers. Nonetheless, they are blood-sucking lawyers, and they're absolutely okay with me referring to them that way. There's also another program coming out for the network called Two Guys Talking Law 
where I will be leading a podcast along with my intellectual property lawyer friend, Adam Bagwell, who will be talking about intellectual property laws and trying to explain to people the foundational elements of how to not be a dumbass with things that are proprietary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I'm glad that that's used in this. And frankly, guys, I've been referring to that since the day I heard blood sucking lawyer inside of this film. Yeah. And the guy that plays that part, he does it so well. I mean, (laughs) when the guy's talking about blood sucking lawyer, he's like, you know, Yes. You know, (laughs) (laughs) legitimately. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, It's great stuff. And uh, again, a great moment inside of Jurassic Park. Time to meet the kids. Carl, you and I have been talking about children inside of movies for a very, very long time. Yeah. Now, I'm going to give the kids a pass for at least two thirds of this film. What do you think? Well, I I can't. I I want to. (laughs) Everybody wants to. Um, But again, in rewatching it, Oh, they're so bad. They're just so... Well, I'm going to take this moment to try and convince you. Are you ready? Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. All right, go on this adventure with me. In fact, you're the one that actually mentioned it first. I was going to mention it later on, but we'll mention the concept of the theme park. You must have test subjects for an experiment. And for all its intents and purposes, we're not going to call Sir Richard Attenborough a mad scientist. We're definitely not going to call him Dr. Frankenstein. But he does have a test to be done, and the test is the theme park. And so without a demographic, the ones that matter to him the most, no less, the children, you would not have nearly, not so much the peril, but the reason that would be inside of this movie for Richard Attenborough to care at all about anything. Yes, I agree with you. I do. I don't. I'm not saying that they're not in, integral to this story. And you're you're right. You're right on every level. It's it's certain scenes with which I'm let down by the particular direction and the acting and the screenplay and everything that is going on with those kids. That those are like cinematic crimes to me. This was the early onset. Well, Hook was part of that too. I guess I should say. I don't want to. I can't say he just started just here, but like once there was there was this moment where Spielberg started really getting into kids and and the use of kids and them in the movies. Not E.T. Uh, you know, E.T. was a different thing because it was about a kid. The whole movie was about a kid and an alien. Mm-hmm. But it just felt like okay, like all right, Spielberg, you've got like now I am Spielberg, and now I have to have kids in this movie. I have to have them. I cannot not have them because this is what I do. I am Spielberg, and so I have kids in all my movies, and I have to pander to them, and I have to cater to them, and they have to be a part of it. And now I'm just talking about this movie because then often he comes around later, and, and with you know Schindler's List, which was you know phenomenal, which was a which was a movie that was so opposite of anything that was a Spielberg movie, which reinvigorated my faith in him. But like just everything, like with the kids being oh, okay, one girl is the scientist kid, the computer kid, and she magically knows how to work the computer controls and simulations of Strasbourg. Like, that is such a huge crime. I, I cannot forgive it. I can't. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to interrupt Carl's frustration and absolute legacy at hating children, and we're going to push that towards the back end inside of the bads for sure. Anyway, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that we talked about first Carl's hatred of children, but then also, of course, just that the kids are actually introduced inside the film. 
the automobiles that drive themselves, and branding again. Now, in 2015, Carl, we are a hop, skip, and a jump from cars that drive themselves, buddy. I, I don't know how to tell you that and not horrify you, but we are. Yeah, uh, no, I get it. You, you're right. We are. We're, we're getting and, it. We're and, and I'm not talking about inside of a nature preserve someplace. I'm talking about you walk out of your house, you get into a car that's got nobody in it, no steering wheel, and you then get to someplace. That is right around the corner. I'm not. I'm, I'm not farcical fantasizing here. It is. Uh, it is coming, and it is real. And we saw that for the first time. Uh, not for, maybe not for the first time, but commercialized and branded in Jurassic Park. Yes, yes. Now, granted, they were riffing off of the Disneyland, you know, cars that ride on the track at Disneyland that have a track thing. It was a futuristic version of that. Right. Uh, you know, but, you know, a, a, a harbinger of the future nonetheless. In any case, Carl, the bottom line is that automobiles that drive themselves are on their way, except they were already here. Back in 1993. Meeting the guy that's that black guy in every movie ever. Everyone hold on to your smoky butts. <laughs> <laughs> so here we have the man, the legend, the the actor that my... This is the first actor that my daughter, who is now 12 years old, knew when she was 3 years old. And it's because he's in every damn thing that's on the planet. It's Samuel L. Jackson. Another fine performance. He stuck the butt of the cigarette in his mouth, and he acted speaking with it in his mouth the whole time. Nice little touch. Yes, too true. And I, I yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I kind of look at it this way. Uh, he is a man for all seasons inside of all movies. Uh, he ends up giving everybody a hand at the end. Uh, he doesn't end up living, although that's an asterisk because that would be me being absolutely racial. Because of course there may be one other black man inside of Jurassic Park's island makeup. But he, you know, he did some interesting things with the character, at least, prior to him becoming, you know, kind of a parody of himself now, sadly, you know. <laughs> now it's like, you know, he, he, he had range, and I'm not saying he doesn't have it now, but oftentimes his range currently is not displayed, or he's not given a chance to give us range. He just ends up being, oh, there's Samuel L. Jackson yelling again. You know, at least in Jurassic Park, he put the cigarette butt in his mouth, and he was, you know, he was he was good. He played a character. I bought him in that character, and I it didn't. The character didn't have to be Sam Jackson, like Michael J. Fox is a parody. Though, as he's just Michael J. Fox and everything. Julia Roberts is just Julia Roberts and everything. Samuel L. Jackson has kind of become that, and I think he's better than that personally, or at least he has been better than that. Yes, I'll agree with that, and I mean the the way I look at it is I look I look at it through my twelve year old's eyes currently, where she is an absolute Star Wars fiend. She must know everything about Star Wars, and so uh, that graphs into Mace Windu. But then also she is an absolute marveler of everything Marvel, and so she instantly recognizes him as either of two characters: Mace Windu. Look, Daddy, it's Mace Windu played by the actor Samuel L. Jackson, or she recognizes yeah. him as, hey, Daddy, look, it's Nick Fury, played by the actor Samuel L. Jackson. She literally says those yeah. two things, depending on what mood or whatever we're watching. Yeah. Now, that is what, his be what he has become, and by the way, it's how he has become the most highest-paid actor ever in Hollywood. He is currently? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, very interesting. He's he's made so much money across so many different segments. He's the highest paid actor in Hollywood. More so than like Tom Cruise. Dude, I'm just reading what the internet tells me. You know, everything that appears on the internet's true. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. I will believe the almighty internet as well. That's right. Why don't you just go hate children or something? That'd be great. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> Entering the doors of Jurassic Park. Now again, Carl hasn't seen it, so I'll throw up the spoiler alert. Well, we're gonna blow it for Carl anyway. The That's bottom, okay. the, the, <laughs> the bottom line is that the doors are also featured inside of the most recent Jurassic World, and they are they are an indicator. They are a total throwback to what was Jurassic Park that now is Jurassic World, and it's great to see them again. And the the scene inside of this where you have the the vehicles meet the door, the door opens, the doors are then referred back to when Newman is trying to escape with the awesome Barbasolness. <laughs> and they they are an absolute iconography of what happens inside Jurassic Park. Yeah, I, I you know what I, I look forward to seeing that. I look forward to that that is a good, without even seeing the movie. I'm glad that you're telling me that they included that in it. Yeah, um, I know that the movie is supposed to take place while Jurassic Park has been around for a while. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I mean, it's it's essentially time has passed naturally. I would consider it a little bit future tense. I mean, they don't go and it's been 22 years. It's time. It's time appropriate as as opposed to and now it's a hundred years after the original Jurassic Park. The venerable Richard Kiley, as a professional voiceover artist, I also wanted to make sure that we mention the voiceover king, Richard Kiley, who is depicted in here as the voice of Jurassic Park and a variety of different segments. Unfortunately, Kiley died of an unexpected bone marrow disease in Warwick, New York, on March fifth. 1999, so 15, 16 years ago now. Wow. Uh, just before he turned age 77. So he was the standard of what you could listen to inside of museum voiceovers, and he will be missed, though anytime you watch Jurassic Park, you get to get a good, solid taste of the venerable Richard Kiley. <laughs> Programmers, those that network, and being appreciated at your technology 9 to 5. I have to tell you, Carl, that we're now working inside of a technical nine to five. Newman's character is very well represented inside of the technology industry. <laughs> sure, I imagine so. Yeah, the uh, the guys that aren't appreciated, the ones that tell you that they're not appreciated, and oh, by the way, when am I going to get some more money? Uh, they do live, yeah. they are out there, and they are real. <laughs> Time to tempt the Rex. Things eat other things. I love this scene. We're going to try to... He's got the, that cigarette that's apparently super glued to his lip. We're going to try to tempt the Rex here real quick. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. yeah. And uh, suddenly we see this little goat. This little nobody goat that, you know... Uh, who brought the boatload of goats over from wherever? <laughs> yeah. Because what, a, just a, an absolute innocent goat that, that just sits down and does nothing. <laughs> I love that. I thought it was great. And again, it's another opportunity for our characters to say awesome things like, the T-Rex doesn't want to be fed. It wants to hunt. <laughs> yeah. all, all kinds yeah. of that stuff. It's 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 all great, and it's a great scene inside of Jurassic Park. Well, it's also a good segue for the one line that is shared with a child in the movie that I do really appreciate that I like <laughs> is when he tells them, he asks them about the binoculars and if they're heavy. If they're heavy, then they're expensive. Put them down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put them down. 
<laughs> and of course, you could buy actual binocular toys like that because it was a piece of the branding. Mm-hmm. Of course. Remote cameras, having dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour, and tapping glass. I have to admit, Carl, that I've actually done this inside of my video blogs over the past where I'm trying to attract attention and be nonsensical and be obnoxious. I will actually lean in and tap the glass just like Dr. Malcolm does inside of this, and that's why I do it because Dr. Malcolm does. Oh, did it. really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, 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 you are planning on having dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty damn good. No, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, and well, the other thing is, like the FaceTime video feed, pre-FaceTime video feed uh, that Newman engages in as far as the technology and stuff like that. Yeah, video phones. Video phones have come a long way. In fact, one of the sponsors of our podcast network, uh, Sprint's Relay Missouri, focuses specifically on video relay, where, which is where it's all going now, Carl. I don't even know if you know that. Um, yeah. Uh, mo- most people don't. The actual realm of technology conversation inside of the realm for the deaf and hard of hearing community is video relay. It, or I'm sorry, not even video relay now. It's video phones so that I can right now, as you and I speak, dial my wife on my cell phone. Her face will come up. And so it's FaceTime. The difference is that it's real-time video. And we're both throwing sound language to each other. Uh, it's remarkable. It, uh, it allows us to talk directly one-to-one instead of having to have an intermediary where I'd have to be talking to an operator who is providing sign language, which I then listen to and then tell the operator what I'm saying and the operator provides sign language. Well, you can still do yeah. that, but the bottom line is that we now don't have to. We can literally go sign language to sign language. Uh, essentially, the technology of back then is the reality now. And I, Again, I, I love as my media generation slash review life continues here at two guys talking being able to talk about things like that when back when i started this way back in night in 2004 you didn't really have live sign language ability inside of anything and now we do and that's really exciting yeah yeah it's pretty damn cool meeting the trike and the doctor that cared for raymond the rain man I don't know the name of that actor, but instantly when I hear his voice and see his face, I instantly think that we're talking about the park ranger. You, you follow me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Australian guy or the New Zealand guy or whatever. No, no, no. This is the other guy. The guy that's got the gas-powered Jeep that's with the sick trike. Oh, wow. Okay, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, and, I, and I, I love this because I'll get at least one hate email from the people that know that I'm a picky bastard and always mention stuff like that, but they always like picking on me because of it. Anyway, I, I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that because I love that actor, and he must be the most clueless actor. What is it that he was going to do if she's there telling him what's wrong with the with, with the trike? What was he going to be yeah. doing except maybe, I don't know, cornholing the, the trike while it's sleeping or something? I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't quite get that either. You make a very good point. I never thought about it in that, in that capacity. <laughs> so I... <laughs> I knew that that had to get mentioned here inside of our review, but uh, it became way more colorful than I originally thought. So, eh. Yeah. <laughs> the sick trike was obviously another giant standard inside of practical effects that was not CGI. That was not computer-generated anything. It was giant bellows. It was giant uh, uh, animatronics. It was... P- 
people that make real things, putting real things in place to make the scene get pulled off seamlessly. And it was great. It was it was tremendous. That and also sound design also had a great play inside that scene. Yeah, you need you needed those moments like that. To me, that's the 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 magic kind of successful movie that employs CGI in it is having moments where characters that are otherwise normally CGI are not, and they're created whole cloth from beginning to end without any additional aid of any digital anything. Same thing with the with the dinosaur that eats Newman in, in the you know that that dinosaur was. There was no CGI involved in the creation of that dinosaur. Right, right. Very exciting. And uh, the, the other component of that is something else to remember. Did you see Lost in Space, the movie, with Joey from Friends? Well, little bits of it. I remember it being horrible. Okay, well, it, it is definitively bad. I'll give you that. But what I also wanted to mention was that that little creature, I don't, whatever the hell his name was, Meebop, whatever, I don't remember what his name was. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the creature... The creature is actually covering up a real creature. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> and and I haven't... They on creating it, and then they wanted to go and do CGI yes. in the end. Yes. And I have not... I don't remember... Or maybe I've blocked it out. I don't remember. But the uh, I don't remember what the original creature looked like. But it was that heinous that they made sure that when it was able to, they use the new digital Mebop, whatever the name of that character was, to cover up the one that was inside of that movie because it was that bad. And that's what I'm really glad they were able to avoid inside of something like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Tyrannosaur Paddock that lives on forever. Now, obviously, Carl and I have talked about this enough, I think, that... uh, you know, it, it was the gold standard back in 1993. Can we make it look at least as good as the Tyrannosaur Paddock in Jurassic Park? I'm certain that that was said inside of any and or all movie effects houses across the world at one point. And the answer was, of course, oh, absolutely. <laughs> the problem yeah. is that it's not. And there's a reason why. It is that high a quality of special effects, both seamless transitioning from complete CGI scene to something that is not and being affected by this gargantuan dinosaur that was soaking wet. You you know this story, don't you? Uh, uh, yeah, that was how the, the foam rubber soaked in so much water that it made, hard, it made it hard for the hydraulic fluid. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. And that the literal foam took on enough weight to begin making the hydraulics malfunction because the hydraulics, just like anything else inside of special effects, is based on math. And so when you start screwing with the weight of something and the initial abilities of anything hydraulic, nothing good happens. And so uh, inside of some of the the, uh, the background features of Jurassic Park in a variety of different places, you can actually see where, I, I think they actually had a name for him too, I'm just going to call him Tony, Tony the T-Rex, where like he would be shaking like an old man, you know, like, a, like, like yeah. Michael J. Fox does now with his Parkinson's. Except that it was yeah. the dinosaur, and it was because the the hydraulics were not being complementary because of the extra added weight because of the rain. And there are a couple of scenes now when you watch it, especially inside the Blu-ray presentation, that you can see where there are... It's not herkimer jerkimer, but it's definitively jerking as opposed to being a nice, fluid, smooth-moving thing. And I've got to I've got to lay that on that it was the water and the hydraulics. Because in just about every yeah. other... A session and inception where something like that happens it is seamless and wonderful yeah 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 they were they were they were pioneers they were on the they were de- i mean the same thing happened with jaws they were dealing with i mean 
obviously a lot more. They had so many problems with the mechanical shark in relation to the mm. water and stuff like that. And yeah. here Spielberg, 20-some years later or whatever, is revisit, revisiting those same types of problems. Nedry meets his fate. The blood-sucking lawyer becomes blood, and a chaos-tician survives several instances of chaos. This whole little session right after the initial paddock scene is one of the best in cinematic history. I didn't realize it until I watched it again recently, but it just is. There is a, it's something Carl and I have talked about in lots and lots of other movies, and it is the transitions. There is a transition from scene to scene to scene, and just the transition of the scenes is what becomes the storytelling not the storytelling within the scenes. Do you follow me, Carl? Yes, yes. It's, again, it's a total rarity. It doesn't happen in a lot of programs. And very often, it is not the uh, thank you Steven Spielberg moment. It is a thank you editor's moment. Yeah, yeah. Very well crafted Yeah, talk, uh, on a lot of levels. Talk about the value of editing inside of just about anything, Carl. Well, back then, now, and today, and every time, you know, all moviedom, the efficiency with which you tell your story is something that is like, it's a, it's a craft that is so not appreciated because movies can have so much bloat to them, especially big tentpole genre pictures. And, and oh, look at any Transformers movie. It's just an absolute fat cow of a movie with so much fluff and visual vomit everywhere. To be able to deftly edit is to be able to deftly sculpt your story and your movie and to be able to cut away anything that is not needed, anything that gets in the way of the storytelling and is just, you know, fat on the bone. And when things can be efficient, that's more often than not when you have, you know, the greatest storytelling capability yeah I, I totally agree with that and i think there's a couple of films i'd point to of course the james cameron films because i am a total james cameron whore uh, but but they really do showcase what happens when you must go back and begin slicing things off the bone there's three of them the first one is aliens the sequel to 1979's alien that one if you look at what is the director's cut inside of either the laser disc or now the cornucopia edition whatever it is that you can go and get of the alien films and you watch the director's cut of that you'll see what are unfortunately really really good scenes that really really do give you more story inside of every instance inside of that film but that they had to cut them and did to try and fit the movie into a time frame was genius it comes very much what Carl is talking about, where you sit down and watch the movie that you had blood, blood, sweat, time, and all kinds of ramen noodles to make, and then you go, do we need this scene? No. Do we yeah. need this scene? Yes. Do we need this scene? And unfortunately, you make some really, really difficult cuts and, and hope that it yeah. all pays off. Uh, the second one, again, that has a wonderful director's cut is Terminator 2. Uh, Terminator 2 is another great film in director's cut version that literally gives you more tapestry inside of the character storytelling inside of the film. It It is rich. It is detailed. It helps plug holes that are inside of, you know, the more discerning slash fan brain think inside of that film for sure. And then the last one I'll mention, another James Cameron film is The Abyss. The Abyss, sure. might, might, the Abyss might be the one that is the fat off the bone because... Damn, we got to take some fat off the bone. <laughs> yeah, and, and, they really had to. That yeah, one, that one of the you you nailed it. I mean, of the three, that one you can really see that those scenes could easily live not in the movie when the movie is better for it. Yes. The other the other one, 
especially Aliens, I loved those additional scenes. Totally understand why they cut them, yeah. but I loved them. And yeah. I'm so grateful that we, you know, that we have technology, the Blu-ray, well, and DVD, because DVD was showing us extra stuff like that, too, prior to, you know, that, that allows movie fans to engage and see the extras cut. And, I mean, that's really wonderful. That's really great. Yeah, it allows another level of fandom to occur, and it, it frankly, is what drives me into two guys talking realms of just about anything I want to review. Believe it or not, Aliens is on the list to be reviewed, and it will be epic. That will be another one of those massive two guys talking undertakings that I will love, and I will make those all very special because uh, all of those films, in particular the Cameron films, are all very dear to me. Sure, sure. A time when shutting down everything would work as a solution. Back in 1993, Carl and I have already alluded to the not-quite-inception of the Internet then. Uh, Carl, I've talked to a bunch of people, and if I'd have had the Internet back in 1988 when you and I graduated high school, I think I'd be in a lot of trouble by now. (laughs) I think so, too. I agree. There is so much magic and awesome that the Internet has afforded me, especially as an adult, that I am totally appreciative of. My millions of downloads a year, my ability to contact people across the world instantaneously, the connection and communication process I have with my deaf wife, all of that is thanks instantly to the internet and i don't know what i would do without it currently back then however it was a completely different world with completely different rules and completely different communications process in particular inside of networked computer systems and so inside of this first shutdown to to try and reset everything i'm actually okay with the very first one i i I think i can deal with that it's it's where they're trying to figure it to make it work as a solution. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that this is going to work. And it happens to work. So good on you. Uh, the, the time, the way that the computers work back then, they're not stepping the computers up to some, some galactic communication realm where just digital magicness happens and everything's great. They're literally dumbing the system down to what is the beginning steps of a networking slash connecting it all together process. And it happens to work by shutting it down, taking it back to zero and then begin building from there up. So thumbs up for that portion, especially based in 1993. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm spot on. You're spot on with that. The galley scene. That is the precursor for so much blood. I love this scene also. And it's not because the Gallimimus skeletons were the precursor for making everything inside of the the digital dinosaurs happen. It was. We all know that. But this scene also allows us to have something primal. The other thing I love about this scene is that the silence that is used inside of this scene is one of the many perfect showcases inside of moviedom where silence really matters. Yeah, right before the stampede. Literally, as Dr. Grant grabs Timmy... Uh, Timmy's marveling. There's so much blood. And there's no other sound at all except maybe the very distant crunching and slurping of whatever the T- the T-Rex is listening or doing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's special, and it's not used enough. You and I have talked about the value and the benefit of silence inside of movie making. And I think way too many filmmakers need to have that, okay, we've got to have some sound design here. Oh, wait a second. We've got to have some, you know, super propelling guitar in this set. And no, you don't. You don't. You you yeah. can you can take it down another notch and provide something completely different inside of some silence inside of your movie. Yeah, absolutely. 
tracking the Raptors. This is spectacular because the, the Raptors have become something over the last 23 years that I don't think anybody really expected. They are... Yeah, they're, they're villains. They are movie villains. Yes, they are. As surely as they, if they had the hands to twirl a mustache, they all would be. And I'm, I'm excited that they have become what they have become, especially after this most, most recent film. And being able to track them on screen was marvelous inside of this movie because guess what? You didn't see them. You didn't see them for a long, long ass time. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's what makes, especially inside of the Jaws realm, I think Jaws, uh, I'd have to look at it again, but I think it's 43 minutes into Jaws where you don't see Jack, a fin, maybe a, you know, a shadow. Uh, yeah. But all you've got inside of Jaws is bottom, bottom, thick blue water, somebody swimming, the perspective view of somebody swimming. Dum, 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 That's all you got. You got nothing. Yeah. Atmosphere. And, right. It's also another giant nod to John Williams, who did that soundtrack too. Yeah. So again, all of this movie making, this creation, this this world world making that Carl uses is a great term. All of that is special, in particular when you don't have to show the the villains. It is amazing to me, and I love it. Yeah, that's well. Spielberg is he's great at hiding and great at showing. Yes. The weapons of Jurassic Park. Now I'm going to link over to the Internet Movie Firearms database, of course. That is just a, a wonderful cornucopia of all kinds of firearms and everyone that's detailed inside of Jurassic Park. I just wanted you all to know that that link is there. And remember the link for this podcast, as well as all the links about what we're talking about, as well as a picture of Carl that Carl probably doesn't know about, are oh available. God. Yeah, are available for you over at twoguystalking.com forward slash Jurassic Park. Carl, don't wreck your car. <laughs> The jerk slash jump action of the electrical shed. So we fast forwarded inside the film quite a bit here. And the reason I wanted to is because I am officially not a fan of the <gasps> scare inside of movies. I'm oh, not. Sure. Uh, it's usually cheap. It's usually people walking backwards. It's usually somebody walking backwards into a knife or a spear. And I hate it. However, inside of Jurassic Park, you know what? I'm okay. I'm all right with it. And if I had every other movie that's going to bother to have the the jerk jump action inside of an area like this, especially a dark one enclosed with metal all around you, I want you to look at this movie and follow only what you see. <laughs> that's interesting. You know, well, another movie I will forgive, not that I'm trying to switch tracks, another movie that does that a bunch of times, but I completely forgive it, is John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, totally right on, dude. In fact, that's one that we've definitely got a plan to do. It's just such an excellent film. And it is, it's also one of the few that I like that actually has lots of gore in it. Uh, for anyone that's new to two guys talking, a couple of things about me. One, I don't care for gore. Carl is definitively the Fangoria guy, but I am not. Yeah. I, I never have been. It's never lit me up. I'll, I'll endure it because Carl enjoys reveling in it. I'll endure it inside of our uh, our True Blood reviews because it was a great run and our downloads were absolutely phenomenal for True Blood reviews. It was awesome. But I am not a vampire guy. You've really got to grab me on the writing for anything horror-based. 
because if you start giving me horror and what you give me is exactly what I'm explaining to you, the, the, uh, the uh, all of that, I have absolutely no interest in sitting in a theater for an hour and 39 minutes experiencing that. I just, I don't have any interest. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. It, it makes sense. And I, I'm with you. I've probably tamped down my gore intake quite a bit. Except when it, watched. yeah, except when it comes to murdering children. Oh, well, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm fine with kids being alive. I just don't want them to be in the movie. You just want them to stop breathing. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> the value of silence again and jiggling jello. Again, folks, I, I don't have to do anything but have you go watch this scene and you instantly see how silence and a small 12, 13 year old girl jiggling jello on a spoon. Done. You, you got it. You're right on. Home run. Well, along with that, you'd have to then, with the jiggling jello, which we kind of skipped over, you have to make note of how awesome the ripples in the water glass were uh, on the dashboard of the oh, car well, when the T Rex is walking. That, well, that's another definitive moment where something is jiggling or shaking that is so in tune with the with the fabric of the storytelling at that moment it's great it's yeah. a great moment well and, and again not just the storytelling inside of Jurassic Park but the storytelling inside of anything that rips off that idea of there's something being thundering coming this way do, do, yeah. do you actually know the story of the, the how they how they pulled that off the the, the uh, concentric circles do you know this story yeah I kind of do say it again you know, they worked hard to try and figure out how they were going to make concentric circles inside of the water glass that was sitting on top of the glove compartment inside of the ride-along vans, right? Or the ride-along Jeeps. Why did they Why did they want it to have needed to be concentric circles? Oh, it was in the script as concentric circles, and so they needed concentric circles, not just the stuff in the cup rattling. Oh, okay. And so they tried everything, dude. They... they they, they beat on the tires with a bunch of different elements to see if they could make the concentric circles. They, uh, they, get, they began making a fake version of the dashboard so they could do different things. And none of it, nothing that they did worked at all. And then finally, what finally made it happen, do you, you do or don't know this? No, I can't remember. I, I'll remember once you say it. Sure. Uh, finally, what happened, they took a guitar string. And they put the they uh, attached the guitar string to the top of the glove box, and struck the guitar string. Yes, now I remember. Yeah, and so again, it's a very special moment in uh, in by the way, practical effects moment, yay, uh, for Jurassic Park. That is yeah. uh, again, it's been ripped off in so many movies, and most of the time it's done right. But it's because now everyone knows how to do it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, it's great stuff, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Carl. Thanks. The kitchen scene and the personality of a raptor. This scene is another magical one inside the film, Carl. You've got two raptors. you got two kids. You have a kitchen full of kitchen stuff, and they're able to play that entire stage wonderfully every single instant inside that scene. There's never anything tired. Whether it's the mirroring of the girl trying to shut the door when you don't really know that it's mirroring yet. And so, oh my God, it's going to get her and it doesn't get her and crashes into it. Awesome. The acoustical nature of what's happening inside that room, whether it's the bellowing calling of the first raptor or the sounds and the growling and the there's like this nuggety purring of the 
of the raptor inside of that scene as well. That's all wonderfully done. The splash of pans and ladles and whatever the hell else is inside that room, all of that is wonderfully done, and it's sound design, or helping to put on platform everything inside the storytelling element. It's done wonderfully. What is the, remember when the raptor is calling out to the other raptor? That, that was awesome. Yeah. The thing that I remember most about that scene, it is a fantastic scene, but what I remember most is the video animatic they made of the storyboards of that scene. Yeah. As a precursor, that is, you know, one of the features of the DVD that I just think is absolutely awesome. Yeah. I absolutely and, love it. Yeah, and for those of you that don't and haven't partaken in any of the features of the original Jurassic Park feature sets inside of the – I've got the Blu-ray, and the Blu-ray has them also – uh, make sure you get to it. it. It is, I would say, required watching. It will tell oh, you yeah. and teach you so much more about the filmmaking elements inside of a Spielberg-based thing that you will begin marveling, as we do, as you can tell from the length of this podcast, that how Carl and I take on a completely different viewpoint when you talk about something that has the words Jurassic and Park in it. It is something completely different, and those features and featurettes will take you into completely different water that you will really revel in. Rex to the rescue. Man, it just doesn't get any better than this. The guy that you are the most afraid of accidentally comes to your rescue at the end of this film. The splash of the raptors on the hanging wall stuff that was actually done practically and digitally the uh, screaming of the T-Rex at the end where the banner flies to the ground, which is also hearkened to inside of the most recent film. All of that is not just valuable. It goes back to that iconography of what happens inside of this movie, and it is really, really special. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty... It, it, it wraps the whole thing up so nicely. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's such a great final shot to that the dinosaurs in the movie where the banner is falling down and mm -hmm. he roars. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's spot on. Yeah. So we've come to the end of the listing of goods inside of Jurassic Park. We're wondering what you thought was great inside of Jurassic Park that we may have missed inside this ridiculously long marathon session inside of the goods of the Perspective Review of Jurassic Park 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. Let us know what you think by going to our Facebook presence. That's facebook.com forward slash the number two guys talking. We want to hear what you think. Start up a new thread there or latch on to one of the ones that's already been created. We want to hear from you. Just as every movie has goods, there's also the bad. So we come to a listing of stuff. I know all of you are absolutely flabbergasted that we had such a, an exhaustive listing of positives that there could possibly be any negatives of, at all inside of this film. Well, prepare. <laughs> the sad reality of the cost of theme parks. Now, Carl, you mentioned going to a theme park. Did you go as a child where you just went and reveled and didn't have to pay a dime? Or have you actually taken children to a theme park? Yes, I have. I almost had suffered through that. But it wasn't suffering. It was just the ice cold bucket of reality in the face. That's all of it. Okay, so which one? Well, Disneyland. I took uh, my stepdaughter to Disneyland. Okay, so what I'm asking, though, is you did, you weren't taken as a child to a theme park. You took oh, children oh, to a theme no, park. No, no I, I did. Yeah, of course. Yeah, my five parents took me to Disneyland and Disney World as well. Oh, okay. All right. Well, good. All right. So you, you have both perspectives, where I, on the other hand, only have one perspective, where I hauled my wife and I to a theme park before we had my child. 
So. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, where where I'm essentially going is this: with the exception of Six Flags, not too far from St. Louis, which I'll call a theme park, but it is not Disneyland. It is not Disney World. Yeah. It is a go and get sunburned and spend too much money day, and then you come home. <laughs> and then yeah. that's all it is. Now, the concept of theme parks, however, also have an accompanying cost. And the sad reality is that you usually end up spending thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars to get to them, to have a really long vacation with a lot of family members that go. And Jurassic Park, inside of every incarnation, I think, especially when they mention that it's going to, you know, we're going to have families and they'll be able to afford blah, whatever. It's going to cost an ass ton of money to do that. The difference is that inside of now theme parks, it already is expensive. Yeah. Doesn't the lawyer say, like, well, we'll have a coupon day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, I think that might be the day that Mike goes. Because, <laughs> I mean, it yeah. is very, very expensive. And it's not that I don't have a problem trying to justify the cost. In fact, we went to Universal again before my daughter was born in uh, 1998. We went down to um, Cape, uh, Cape Canaveral for the John Glenn shuttle launch. And while we were there, we stopped in Orlando and went to Universal. So we've been there, and I totally get it. It is a, uh, it is phenomenal. It is over the top. It, it's awesome. Is was it worth the money that we spent? Eh, maybe then, but there were only two of us, and we were eating like there was one of us, as opposed to eating like there's ten of us. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but that's the something else I wanted to make sure that we put in a little piece of reality, and that it costs a lot of money to go to theme parks, dude. You taking a family of six. Or even five, let's say. So two kids, or three kids, and the parents. It's monumental, dude. Yeah, it is, certainly. Well, and they allude to that. So, if anything, the movie is spot on on what it is, is saying, that this is going to be in a very expensive park to visit. We're going to make a fortune with this podcast. A second reset, an electrical fence, and kids. All right, Carl. Time to load both barrels. They're loaded. <laughs> All right, good. Ready to go. The, the first thing we're going to talk about in this segment is the second reset, which, unless you don't remember, is when there is, in general, a second reset in the electrical vein, which then leads to the electrical fence scene, which then leads to electrified kids, which leads to bringing kid back to life. All of which yep. I hated. Yep, yep. It's, it's really bad. The kid should have been turned into a fine red mist. Are you <laughs> telling me that the electricity that they put through that thing in order to keep a T-Rex at bay could not just, like, poof, that kid <laughs> into flash paper? <laughs> Why on earth would you say, now, nah, you know what, let's have the kid up there, let the fence start, you know what, we'll blow the kid off the fence, you know, from like whatever, you know, 20 feet in the air, he'll survive the fall. We'll, we'll give him a little mouth to mouth, have him get up, boom, he's good to go. Who on earth authorized those decisions to move forward? <laughs> I don't know. What were you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. The other thing that gets me on that is that there's no burns. You know, he doesn't have any burns on his hands or feet. You know, he's, he's, he's essentially untouched except that his heart was stopped. And again, for those of you that say, you know, you had to just call your podcast the nitpicker son of a bitch podcast. And 
I, I, by the way, I've reserved nitpickerspodcast.com for all of us for eventually when I do that. Uh, but the, 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 the gist is this. I'm not looking for reality. What I'm looking for is, could we have cut about 12 minutes off of this movie and be none the better for it? And the answer is, of course. Yeah. You could have completely eliminated. Let's say you leave in the electrical box room and all that awesome. Hey, fine. No problem. But not needing to weave in the, okay, time to crawl up the fence and have a good giggle. Let's go really, really slow. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, not, Not having all of that is awesome. What I also wanted to mention inside of this, when we talk about realism, there was a wonderful follow-up to an initial video inside of a a YouTube video series that I watch called Nuttin' Fancy. That's N-U-T-N-F-A-N-C-Y. And traditionally, he is a firearms reviewer. It's how I found him initially. But he does a whole bunch of other reviews as well. And two videos that he recently authored and I think are just absolutely spectacular deal with zombies. And I'm not a big zombie fan. You guys know that. I'm not... I'm not the gore guy. I am not that guy. But the two videos, and we'll link to them inside of the show notes for this episode, they literally talk about the best zombie-killing weapons of all time. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are currently available. And what he does is he goes through these weapons, all of which he actually has or has used or knows lots and lots of information about, and he runs through them and tells you why they should be used, what would happen if they were used, the logic in using them, but more importantly... How the people that wield them, that aren't stupid, by the way, will benefit and then make better storytelling for people on television and movies about zombies. That's what I'm talking about here when Carl and I talk about who who in the script saw that these kids would be crawling up this fence and then one of them would be lit on fire. Except that he's not going to be lit on fire. In fact, nothing's going to happen from his 40-foot fall as he's catapulted, what, 80 feet from the fence? Lands on his back and head, and he's none the worse for wear after a couple of chest compressions. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you you just, it would have been, I could have bought the whole thing. If you're saying to me, okay, we need the kid to be alive. We can't kill the kid in the Spielberg movie. We can't kill a kid. We need to have him be alive for the rest of the week. Okay, I would have said, fine. Then, just to make it a little more palatable, you're going to have to blow his arms and legs off, and then Sam Neill's going to have to drag the torso of the child. (laughs) around through the rest of the movie, hook a rope around his neck and just drag him around, throw him on a skateboard or whatever you're going to do. But you got to make it somewhat real. And, and there's just no way on earth any of that on any level is forgivable. I can't forgive it. It's so bad. I can just see Carl walking up to the, to the bloody stump child, rolling up his arms and legs like a Tootsie Roll end and saying, okay, kid, come on. Yeah, yeah, you got to keep the kid alive. That's, that's the way to the only, I'll say this. The only thing that was good about the electrical fence scene was I did get a chuckle when Sam Neill scared the shit out of the kids by grabbing the fence and screaming. Yeah, yeah. And see, again, I think that that speaks to time wasted rather than it being something valuable. But again, that, uh, and I actually, we're going to ask you guys after each of these points inside the bads, what did you think? Uh, have you got something better? Are we being too nitpicky? If you think we're being too nitpicky, I really don't want to hear from you. But I do want to hear what you thought might have been a better option inside that scene. Let us know what you think by going over to our website. That's twoguystalking.com forward slash Jurassic Park. And tell us what do you think should have happened inside of the second reset moment where the electrical fence burns kid alive, except not really. Yeah. <laughs> All podcasts in Jurassic Park are female. A third reset.
Carl, it's a Unix system. I know this. Sure you do. I don't even start. Don't. <laughs> I just, you know what? I just can't. I, I, I just don't have enough words to just, what? how is it possible you're going to tell me this child knows how to work the systems of a billion-dollar Jurassic can sit down at the controls of Jurassic Park, which is more complicated than probably, or, or as complicated as launching a space shuttle. It is like putting a kid at the controls of the space shuttle and then have the kid utter the phrase, I know this. Mike, I can't even believe that that was in the book. Was it in the book? I don't know, man. If, if I look at that book and I see the words, I know this, coming from a, a between 10 and 13-year-old girl in the book, I might burn the book. Oh. <laughs> I, 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 it is... It is a tiny little sliver of what, unfortunately, is happening inside the third act of way too many movies, especially nowadays. Even huge movies, Carl. Half of the half of the Marvel superhero comic book movies are all ending with something that sounds very much like this. They have all yeah. kinds of awesome, awesome for 2.75 acts of a movie. And then inside of the beginning of the third act, hey, look, a toilet. Grab the script. Let's flush it. Okay. I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's weak. It's weak. It's just pure weakness is what it is. It's weak storytelling. And it's so it's such a crime because it's coupled with such strong storytelling. Like I said, previous Spielberg films up to this point did have such strong telling. Now, granted, there were weak moments. Certainly Hook was not one of his best, best films. But, like, when somebody, when they, when he assembles a team of filmmakers and they go out and they create something like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Close Encounters or what have you, and they're so strong from, from top to bottom, you just, it just really saddens you. It's like a, it's like a deep saddening when you're like, oh, <laughs> that's really crappy. Too bad, Spielberg. You really blew it on this moment. When he, you know, his movies are supposed to be filled with one moment after another of awesomeness, the moment you get to a moment that's like, you got like awesome moment, awesome moment, awesome moment, and then crap moment. And by crap, I do mean fecal matter moment. <laughs> but in the purest of senses, you are shocked. You are slapped. I was slapped in the face as a 20, what was that? I was 23 years old when I saw this film. 23 years old, I'm nothing. I'm in a pupa stage, right? I should still be all wide-eyed and Blah blah blah, it, and it was a a ice cold slap in the face. Oh my god, that was crappy. I knew it back then, and with time, it has only gotten worse. I don't know how crap gets worse. I I thought crap petrified, turns to stone, which is generally not as bad as when it was wet. But somehow <laughs> these crappy moments continue to stay Duncan Hines moist through the years. I just don't get it. <laughs> Me. Perhaps Timmy can, I don't know, get Alan the shotgun. You know, I, I realize that he's just been blown off of a fence after being electrocuted and falling 80, 800 feet to his death, asterisk. I don't know. Anyway, he's inside the control room standing behind Lexi as she's becoming the next... Bill Gates, whatever, inside of the Unix operating system. Ch challenging authority to make sure she can find everything that needs to happen to go and lock a door. 
And so Timmy's doing nothing, including getting the shotgun that is a, a mere hair away from Dr. What's-Her-Name, Laura Dern's character, and giving it to her so she can shoot dead the dinosaur that's trying to murder them both, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Come uh, on, man. Yes. Yeah. It's, Anything. It's, it's, you know, that's where I wanted the movie to start swearing. You know, I wanted Sam Neill <laughs> to say, you know, Timmy, Timmy the effing shotgun. I, whatever. <laughs> it's like you want to scream at the, at the uh, it's, and it's hard because they're kids. Uh, it, it's just all kinds of levels of bad. Just like the rest of the movie has all kinds of awesome, these are all kinds of bad. Yes. And, and thing after another. The, the sad reality is that if most of them are removed, you lose nothing. Because what happens, yeah. the, minute, the minute that she, now she gets through the system and there isn't a fix for that. But the, it, how about all four of them begin pushing on the door and they make the raptor tire out or the raptor just doesn't understand the door enough yet to get it. And so the door locks and then venture forward. Wait, wait, wait. You bring up a good point, though. Hang on. I got to go back to, correct me if I'm wrong. Am I right to think that the two tiny children in one moment stopped a raptor from pushing itself through the doors with its ginormous muscular legs, its ginormous power, the power of a raptor could not, could not defeat the, the two tiny little kids pushing on the door. They pushed the raptor out. Am I right? No, you're not. Am I right that that happened? You're, you're not. Wrong? You are wrong. All right, quantify that. Which sure. I could have well, there was a scene that no, happened. No, it's Dr. It's Dr. Grant and Laura Dern's character at the door. The two kids rush through the door. The two of them are holding the door. And so it's the kids at the computer resetting. And, you know, Timmy's looking, hey, where's Pac-Man? And Ellie's going, oh, I'm glad that I got my online degree at University of Phoenix by understanding the Unix system. Or whatever the hell, however the hell she learned it. <laughs> and they're, they're right. essentially doing nothing. But if the two of them would have went over there and, like, I don't know, Timmy grabs a crowbar or something and s starts bashing the raptor foot or something. I don't know. Something. What something happened? that, some, something that didn't include the, again, third reset in the span of 12 minutes of an entire yeah. computer system that she then instantly recognizes how to use because, of course, she's so familiar with the proprietary yeah. operating systems of a giant dinosaur theme park <laughs> yeah yeah cinematic <laughs> crime and uh, the 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 uh cinematic crime. the jur jury says guilty you're guilty guilty as charged he had another <laughs> podcast domain yeah. name that i will register yeah. because that would be fun cinematiccrime.com plan on it carl we're going to be doing it meh <laughs> call the mainland get them to send the choppers only one of which arrives and in only four and a half minutes that's some kind of laser helicopter dude it's like airwolf or something <laughs> airwolf <laughs> engage the turbo where is jan michael vincent when we need to have him flying this copter man yeah really all right so the the, the cavalry comes to help defend the defend the people from the now murderous dinosaur horde it's a dude in a helicopter that gets there four and a half minutes later. What? Yeah, what? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it, it tires me. It tires me. It's like one body blow after another. Like I'm in the ring and they're just, you're just punching and, they're, and you, you can hear your ribs breaking. 
breaking and pressing into your pancreas and liver, and you're just bleeding out. You're just bleeding out. <laughs> it was it was tough. It actually, I, I actually forgot about all of that. And I, I get how it's forgotten. It's that pace. It's the it's the push of the Spielberg pace at the end, inside of the last act of a movie, that allows you to just kind of gloss across it, and then they deposit you into this wonderful warm pocket of silence. But the the flap, the flat visual of a chopper blade, inside of a cockpit, uh, the, the the back passenger cockpit of a helicopter. That it, there's no sound, you don't hear the rotors, and all you have is that wonderful warm music from John Williams. That's how they're able to kind of, you know, you're not actually seeing this. These these aren't the action scenes in Jurassic Park that you're looking for. It, it's kind of yeah. like a, it's, the, it's, it's a Jedi mind trick that they're playing at the end of the movie based on the pace. And it happens in a yeah. lot of the movies. Uh, as much as we want to revel in Jaws, the end of Jaws, spoiler alert, is where you've got two guys, Miles off the coast of anything that matters and kick your legs. Okay. Yeah. There, there may not be another 35 foot shark, but there sure as hell is maybe a 12 foot shark. Yeah. And a a 12 foot shark will take your foot off and your leg off and your arm off as quickly as the 35 foot one will. And so, you know, uh, again, I don't want to be the nitpicking son of a bitch podcast, uh, but it's frustrating. And, what we don't have inside of this episode of Two Guys Talking are options. It's something I didn't even think about until I was making the skeleton for this today. And I would like for you guys, the audience, to tell us different options that might have made sense here at the end of Jurassic Park to get across and blank out the things that blanked Carl and my memory of Jurassic Park, the bads, here at the end of this review. Let us know what you think by going to our website over at twoguystalking.com forward slash Jurassic Park. Click anywhere on the right-hand side inside the contact area and tell us what were some different options that they could have taken either inside the screenplay or inside the movie to get us over the hump of the bad. Let it be known for the record that I today did offer a very clear and usable option (laughs) of the Timmy Torso story moment. The Timmy, the, dude, dude, you, you've just named it. It's the, his torso around. <laughs> it's the Timmy Tootsie Roll torso solution. Yeah. So only, but you know, the other way, the uh, only way it's going to work is to stop the bleeding. You have to lift the Timmy torso up and take his, the, the, uh, the nubs where the legs have been blown off. And you got to bring them over the electric fence and you can cauterize them. <laughs> You all now realize how my childhood was so much fun and twisted, just like a Timmy torso. <laughs> As we cackle at the unfortunately now leg and armless Timmy, we push to break during this episode of Two Guys Talking, the perspective review of Jurassic Park 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. We will be right back after this complete reboot and the choppers arrive. <laughs> What's to come in the next Star Wars film? What happened on the most recent episode of Star Wars Rebels? What new attractions, rides, and experiences with the Star Wars flair are coming to an amusement park near you? Reserve your seat for the next episode of the Galaxy Cast to find out. Star Wars, science fiction fandom, and more. GalaxyCast.com May the Force be with those who listen. 
Are you a podcaster looking for the best discussion about podcasting by other podcasters? Be sure to grab a chair at the next Podcasters Roundtable, a program led by podcaster and videographer Ray Ortega, who, along with a growing cast of fellow seasoned podcasters, helps you understand the ins, outs, and roundabouts when it comes to the quickly changing world of podcasting. Check it out now at podcastersroundtable.com. That's podcastersroundtable.com. Join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? The fear, the adrenaline, the unknown. Law Enforcement Training for the Arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints, ballistics, DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at LEDAConference.com. That's L-E-T-A Conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you Behind the thin blue line. LetaConference.com. L-E-T-A Conference.com. Go behind the badge. Conspiracies, by definition, require more than one person to be involved. A rally at the new Two Guys Talking podcast studio has finally made it happen. Two Guys Talking is proud to announce a new program on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Conspiracy Agents, which will provide outstanding conspiracy and mystery-based content that will bring yet another flavor of podcast-based ice cream to the Two Guys Talking Network. Check it all out now at conspiracyagents.com as another new year of captured perspective here at Two Guys Talking begins. That's conspiracyagents.com. Conspiracyagents.com. Hi, this is Art Maines from scammercast.com, where we educate, inform, and protect our elders and those who care for them on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Mike Wilkerson here from the Two Guys Talking Podcast. I've been reviewing television, DVDs, feature films, and more for years now. And there's been very few places on the internet that I can go for unique, quality, civilized discussion for all of them. Last fall, I found one that delivers not only everything I want to see in regard to discussion, but sets the bar for having the most civilized comment sections of any entertainment interest website I've ever seen. It's ScreenRant.com, a product of Vic Holterman and Company that gives some of the best, most valuable information on past current and upcoming films and offers one of the most satisfying newsletters I've ever experienced. 
Be sure to visit ScreenRant.com now to check out the current Tempered Fanboy discussion on some great entertainment-based content. And be sure to subscribe to their spectacular newsletter. You won't be disappointed you did. It's all available right now at ScreenRant.com. Tell them that the Two Guys Talking podcast sent you. Things in 1982 were a lot more simple. BMX bikes, the Versailles apartment complex in Schaumburg, Illinois, the sweet, innocent kiss of Andrea Schaefer, and of course, a little film from a man named Steven Spielberg called E.T. Science fiction, the detail of a broken but still together family, the relationships that were made when you were 12, ones that are never again truly realized. It seems a lot heavier than most remember, but all of these things and more await you in the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Steven Spielberg's E.T. 1982 on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Check it out now at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. Everyone, welcome back to the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review of Jurassic Park, a podcast 22 years in the making. I'm here with my childhood friend, my childhood and obscene friend, Carlo Bezzese. Carl, thanks so much for joining me via teleconference. Oh, it's awesome and a pleasure and an honor to be here. Yeah, always fun. So we've talked about the hype, we've talked about the money, we've talked about the good and bad. What we haven't yet talked about is our favorite scene from Jurassic Park, 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. If you've got to have one scene that's with you on the remote island that you only ever get to watch, which one is it, Carl? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, that's tough because, uh, you know, obviously I would need jerk to, you know, you would think it would be a big special effects scene. It probably should be. But I, I will say this, I just have to give a nod to the dinner table scene where where they're all discussing the morality of the of the park and Jeff Goldblum's performance and, and Samuel, all, all of them. I, 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 and just the way it's shot and with the projection of the images of the park all around them. I just think that scene is so well done. And group conversation scenes are so hard to do and make them engaging in movies. They're actually incredibly challenging for directors. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, 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 there's a lot of nuance and stuff that I appreciate in that scene. But it, if I had to jump to a typical action, a classic action scene moment, I would, I would have to say it's what you brought up, which is, it's that moment where you think the raptor is going to get them, but it's the T-Rex that saves the day, the, the big villain. And it's such a nice twist, you know, at a time when that really didn't happen quite a bit. So um, I, I do like that moment. I like that moment. I think, am I, I may be wrong, but I think you get to see like a moment of the raptor's like eyelids blink and reverse or like if the eyeballs go up kind of like a shark or something like that is about to attack i could be totally wrong on that but i just think there's a lot of great stuff in the, in that final moment yeah i i do like both of the scenes that you mentioned i think are tremendous that the one that you talked about where they're all sitting around a table and providing something that's not boring I, I, that really is special i think i'm gonna i'm gonna go a little bit different we did allude to it but we didn't focus in on it there's something uh, dramatically special about the Mr. DNA discussion. Because again, just like the amber, just like the making sure you grab the mosquito blood that then is uh, taken and made into a dinosaur. Uh, yeah. Th- th- that scene also struck me, not only as an adult, but as somebody that's learning something. 
And, you know, what the hell are we making when you can make a movie and actually teach somebody something? Uh, That's that, a good point. Yeah, that, that is something special, and I think it's also overlooked and definitely not used inside of feature film, summer popcorn movie making a lot at all anymore. And I wish that they would revisit that. I, I'm not looking for a science experiment where we grab Mr. Jam Rosie from Earth Science and he helps us make something special inside of a movie. But I am asking for something intelligent that gives us some really great conclusions. And I think the conclusion part is what I didn't get from Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, those are very good points, very good points. And those are things that, like, you wish, you wish if they just had an ounce of intelligence or an ounce of, you know, well, and, and a, a, a very well-crafted way to insert uh, a piece of intelligence in some of the big similar action movies of today, like like what they did with Jurassic Park and the very senior talking about, you know, if they could have done something like that in the absolute abortion that is the last Godzilla film, for yeah. instance, you know, they they could have yeah. done that. They tried, they tried to bring in some some new tech, but they just failed. They just absolutely failed. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, that, that, that movie actually became a character sketch, and I didn't mind it. I just wish it would have not been called Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, it, I guess you're right in that regard. It would have been a great movie, except that it was a, it was a Godzilla movie. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> anyway, uh, that's what we thought was our favorite scene. What is your favorite scene from Jurassic Park? Make sure you let us know by going over to our website. That's twoguystalking.com forward slash Jurassic Park. Fill out that quick web form. Tell us, what was your favorite scene, either one that we've already talked about or one that we've not yet mentioned inside of this giant dinosaur-sized perspective review of Jurassic Park 1993? So it's time to rate this film, Jurassic Park 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg. The scale works thusly. Ready, Carl? Yep. All right. So we have from 1 to 10, 10 being the best, 1 being the worst. Everything starts at a 7 as an average. Everything goes up with positives. Everything goes down with negatives. And, by the way, no halvesies. Carl, what do you got? I, I need to compare it to a previous Spielberg film. So I'm going to compare it to Raiders, okay. which I think is probably his, his most flawless film. Okay. So Raiders is... is, is so spot on on all the levels that we've talked about in the past, right? So for me, Raiders gets a 10. Okay. Jurassic Park is certainly not Raiders. Okay. Great things about it, but it's not Raiders. Mm-hmm. So because of its wonder and awe and the, the, the CGI mixed with practical effects, you know, greatness, you know, that brings it, like, to me, it's, again, watershed moments, it's cinema history, blah, blah, blah. Boom, I, I would go right to a 9, but... But I have to knock off one full point and bring it down to an eight. Because obviously it's above, it's above average. i got to bring it down to eight for his cinematic crimes against humanity. <laughs> those, those moments we spoke, spoke about cannot be forgiven. Like, there are times when I can forgive things. I can say, well, you know what? Okay, I'm going to let that fly. And you're forgiven. No, these are full-blown jail times. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're going to jail for those. Okay. So for that, I'm taking it down to eight, one notch above seven. Okay, I, I think that's valid. And again, the the crimes of cinematic humanity that you mentioned, I think that those are valid. They all have their point and place and time. In particular, the Tootsie Roll twisted torso stumps of Timmy, who was on the fence. Awesome. Yeah, very well said. 
I think when I look back at Jurassic Park, I think of several different things. The first thing I look at is that it brought science to bear without killing the ability of the storytelling. The dinner, the sitting around the table dinner scene that you mentioned, I think is extraordinarily valuable in that vein, but also in just that I don't know a lot of families that sit around a dinner table much anymore and talk about anything. I know yeah. that I, I lament that my family doesn't do a lot of that. I work a lot. I don't, I'm not able to sit around a table often. Um, when we do, we talk about things, but we surely don't talk about the deep things that we're talking about here inside of Jurassic Park. I really did enjoy that. It's something you don't see inside of feature filmmaking much anymore either. You also have what is one of the most grand issuances of special effects ever in cinematic history. So that, you know, that chucks it up a bunch inside this feature film. You've also got the nitpicks that you and I talked about, which do take it down a couple of points for me. So again, when I go from what was a 10 down a couple of points to something that is more reasonable is definitively above average, but definitely not perfect, I too give Jurassic Park 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg, an 8 out of 10 score. Not a bad score. No, Not uh, bad. Nothing no. Spielberg should be, should be proud of that. Yes, absolutely. So we come to the last segment of our perspective review of Jurassic Park, where we focus on the franchise. Now, the franchise inside of our perspective reviews is something that no one else does, because everyone now knows that there are now... How many other films, Carl? You got the second one, Lost uh, World. You got the third yeah. one, Jurassic Park 3. Then you've got Jurassic World. So I don't know what kind of conversation we can have on franchise other than cha-ching, baby. They've all made extraordinary amounts of money. In particular, the most recent Jurassic World, which now has a domestic take of how much, Carl? Oh, I don't know. I haven't paid attention. Domestic, domestic take alone, which is only 40.5% 40, 40 of the total take currently, is $626 million. Jeez. Just a, wow. a, a giant corn combine of cash on its own, only domestic. Guess what the foreign take was, Carl? I'm going to say it's higher. Higher than that. It is higher. What do you think? Seven hundred. So the foreign take for Jurassic World, since its inception in the beginning of June-ish this year, 2015, it's taken in $918 million.5. Oh. For a total grand sum of $1,545,000,000. And so what that instantly equals, Carl, is what? Uh, another one. Another one, for sure. The finality of what happens inside of Jurassic World. There is nothing where there is a book that closes. There isn't where the, the screenplay writers get eaten by a dinosaur at the end. It, it all is very evident that there's going to be yet another one. And the money is unmistakable. With the money this makes, with the, what the franchise has made, what can be propelled with the interest in dinosaurs and science, it is a lock for another Jurassic Park-based movie that's coming. I don't know when, but it is coming. It's something we should all prepare for. Um, oh my God. Yeah, that's actually yeah. where that's actually where we ask you guys, the listeners, what do you think about another Jurassic Park film? Um, if the numbers are any indicator, you guys are probably all okay with it. I just want to know if you're not. <laughs> Let me know what you think by going to our Facebook presence over at facebook.com forward slash two guys talking. That's the number two guys talking and tell us start a new thread and let's discuss the prospects of another jurassic park film or why there shouldn't be another one so until next time i'm mike wilkerson one of your hosts and i'm carl Bazzazi, the other host and yeah and mike i just want to say 
thank you again for inviting me along. It's so much fun to talk on this show and to talk with all of your listeners and everything. It's an honor to be here. And I feel like there are other people out there, too, that want Timmy to be a quadriplegic. They're a paraplegic, at the very least. That's how I feel. So I'm really glad that I get to share that and be a part of that, that audience. Always a special perspective with Carl, Vinny, Tutankhamun, Bezazi here inside of Two Guys Talking. Carl, have you got this soundtrack yet? Remember, too, that the soundtrack featuring the delicious John Williams is available over at the Two Guys Talking website to buy right now so you can have your own copy at twoguystalking.com forward slash Jurassic Park. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. No, hold on. This isn't some podcast that was obliterated by deforestation or building of a dam. Podcasts had their shot and nature selected them for extinction.